Welcome to Ludicrously Specific, an audio podcast distributed via the internet that discusses three feature-length motion pictures that share an unlikely or obscure connection. My name's Doug, and my favorite film with force in the title is Raw Force. My name is Darren, and my favorite uh, film with force in the title is Life Force. And my name is Steve, and my favorite film with force in the title is is also Life Force, oddly enough. I thought it might be. <laughs> I thought it might be. Toby Hooper, one of the, the classic 80s, over-the-top sci-fi. Yeah. Well, some people call it a misfire. I call it a work of absolute friggin' demented genius. Proof that you do not actually have to understand a film to <laughs> love a film. But the thing is, Life Force only has like two genres in it, whereas Raw Force has all the genres <laughs> in it. Raw, that's Raw true. That's a very drunken yeah. Cameron Mitchell. It's, yeah, it's, well, well, that's a genre, one. I think. Yeah. yeah. So so why have I forced this connection on us? Well, oh, 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 oh. we're starting early today. Well done. That's right. <laughs> the pandemic has arrived. <laughs> well. I got my shot. <laughs> <laughs> it's because our three films today are three films in consecutive odd-numbered decades that star a screen icon as a law enforcement official, all of which are named The Enforcer. I hope you got that, because there will be a test. Yeah, and I'm not repeating that. <laughs> so screw you, 60s martial arts movie that's also named The Enforcer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah. I came up with this one, didn't I? I, 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 I think so, yeah. yeah, yeah. You also, can take the blame. Yeah. I definitely take the blame yeah. for this one, because, yeah, I did run across a couple of films, and it went, well, that's interesting. And oddly enough, it's a technicality, because two of our films are called The Enforcer, and one is originally called something else and then was renamed The Enforcer for America, but we'll get to that a little later on. We're released under the title The Enforcer. <laughs> exactly. Even there. more specific. Oh, there you go. All right. <laughs> we might need to edit this one. Yeah. <laughs> or we might just need to say in advance that if you're one of the people that says, oh, I don't know, I, I don't want to spoil these really great movies that they're going to talk about by listening to it, <laughs> you're not in too much danger yeah. this time. <laughs> just so, sit back. Sit back, yeah. relax, and enjoy the ride. And um, while we um, take our uh, scenic route to our <laughs> topic, which uh, you will be well-versed with by now, I guess before we do that, though, I just did want to acknowledge that today, um, Nerd Christmas has arrived early. Ooh, yes. uh, 24-hour movie marathon tickets are officially on sale. Um, and I, hopefully I'll have this up in the next couple days. And uh, nice. and whether or not beanbag tickets are still available by then is anyone's guess. But... Uh, the marathon will be August 7th, a month from today. I can't even remember what day today mm-hmm. is. It is at the, the today, Hollywood exactly. in Avondale. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we've nerded out about the marathon plenty on this before. And, and so we, we may probably... well do again. again exactly, yeah, well. without telling you what's going on in there. But there was a flurry of messaging going around and a flurry of credit cards being whipped out of wallets. And... Yes. 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 <laughs> it, was a, it was a surprise today, but it was a yes. good one. Yes, indeed. And, um, and for me, it's a good surprise because I've had to miss my uh, sister-in-law's birthday for like three marathons in a row because it's in December. So I, uh, no excuses uh, this time. Yeah, no, no excuses. Uh, just uh, make sure I, everyone brings a sleeping bag to stay warm and uh, we'll have a great time. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. it's interesting because we haven't had a, a marathon this early for probably uh, over 10 years at least and I do remember well, having... I think a this middle... might be my 13th and I don't remember no, it No, I'm in sure it was. There was a very, probably maybe third or fourth one out I think was that early and I remember it being freezing at 3 o'clock in the morning because I was lying on the floor. Yeah, Not with a beanbag. I believe that year I didn't have a beanbag. <laughs> I just simply had 
a bunch of blankets I put down thinking that would protect me from the incredibly hard wood of a very old building, and it does not. Interesting theory there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, so... Yeah. Um, yeah. I sh- Thermal I sh- underwear. Yeah, might rug, up, be a- rug up well. Wouldn't I- yep. I'd like to think that they've done some improvements in the intervening. Uh, they, they definitely time. have. There's not quite yeah. such a big gap under the emergency exit door, which blew the wind directly up, you know, where for <laughs> 24 consecutive hours. So. <laughs> and if we you don't to, know where. We might have to do a GoFundMe for you to, to buy a drawstring <laughs> for your. <laughs> I've upgraded since then. Okay. I've upgraded, definitely. Just Good. elastic. I was going to say, they're like, you could probably get a pair of uh, sweatpants for three bucks at Warehouse, man. I could be wearing two of them if it's that cold. <laughs> oh, um, I'm also going to be completely self-indulgent and shout out another little festival that starts tomorrow, which is <laughs> my own. Um, it's completely... Um, because New Zealand International Film Festival usually launch tomorrow night at the Civic with a big screening with 2,000 people, and of course... Um, well, I, I say of course, but I think a lot of people haven't been pay, paying attention or a bit confused. But this year, the festival has been delayed to late October so that they can uh, feature films that are playing at Cannes this year. Um, Cannes literally just started this morning uh, here, last night in France, with Leos Carax's uh, Annette starring Adam Driver and Marianne Cotillard and is... Uh, unspooling over the next 12 days and I could go on for a very long time about all the films and that but I'll spare y'all well, we got some time but, uh, <laughs> we only did two and a quarter hours last week let's, let's go uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, as, or as we call it the uh, we can make this the Snyder cut instead of the Woody cut um, but uh, so I put together a little letterbox challenge because I said well why don't we just make a DIY homebrew uh, film festival and so I came up with, um, inspired by what Steve Austin does and participates in a lot of these letterbox challenges, his usually tend towards horror ones where they'll be like, this week, you know, choose a film by Tobe Hooper or choose, you know, a um, haunted house film or choose a film starring Vincent Price. And instead I was like, choose a slow cinema film, choose a film from Bill Gosden's BFI Top 10, uh, choose a Romanian film. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so I've got some people on board and the opening night film is a film in a film festival venue, ideally on opening night. So tomorrow night, uh, we'll be celebrating opening night with Michael Mann's The Thief. Of course, by the time this goes to air, that will have happened. Mm -hmm. But if you can't actually make opening night, you can still have a film in a um, movie theater that counts towards that. Um, Or you can do what I do, which is doing the the complete inverse, (laughs) the rogue... Roger Corman slash the Asylum version of Doug's Challenge, which is where you subvert as many of these as possible in the cheapest way possible. I've already started. Opening night was four days ago because I'm getting the money off the roofs, sorry, the, the paying public, before Doug's once even opens. And we started with one. He doesn't realize there is no paying public. No, there is no paying public. It's just me watching a bunch of films like a big but <laughs> Which really requires no prompt at all. But, <laughs> but I did start with one that I did originally it's a see festival, at, yeah. one of the, at one of the... Uh, festival venues, and I started that with Kung Fu Hustle, which I hadn't seen. You see that at Pacific? Because I remember seeing it. I believe so. I was Pacific um, when it first came out and hadn't seen it since. How's it hold up? It holds up incredibly well. It's just a a fun fun on the proverbial bun. And it's so ridiculously over the top. And watching the first time, I think I was kind of mesmerized by just the the sheer insanity of it. I was able Mm. to kind of absorb a little bit more of it this time, but it's still, there is just the sheer insanity of it, just makes for, you know, an hour and three quarters of of the best fun you'll have that night. So, yeah, it's 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 great. Definitely, I recommend going back to. Watch well, my that. memory of it was being really uncomfortable by the fact that they were being very jokey about axe violence, 
And I, I, my suspicion is that 16 years later, I'm just a worse person, and I won't be bothered by it. It's, it's, but, um, there is, there's definitely a lot of axe violence, but it's Looney Tunes violence. It yeah, is, yeah. It's, it's so cartoony that you just can't take anything that happens seriously. You may be a worse person, Doug, but you're, you're our worst person. And that's what really matters. Um, so let's... Um, Talk about a few, not all, of the films that we've seen since our last. Uh, I like the novel. We've seen um, a lot of films. I, uh, yeah, it, I think Darren uh, said he has a list of sixteen that made the cut, <laughs> not not sixteen that he's seen, just uh, ones that he thought were worthy of talking about. I think we should start with so, him then. So yeah, I think we should start with you. Are you sitting comfortably? <laughs> then I shall begin. Well, the, the first one is, is actually made up of three movies, um, and this is uh, Doug to blame. It's Doug in the last podcast, or even maybe the last one before the last one, possibly the one before that, mentioned uh, that he uh, uh, he saw I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Yes. And said that the... Um, that he heard that a he wished he saw um, Beautiful Mind in Oklahoma before I'm thinking of ending things. Which is the Charlie Kaufman movie which premiered last year on Netflix. That is correct. It yes. is a 2020 yes. movie. So I, I, I went done did that. <laughs> I'm going to note for the record I have still yet to see either A Beautiful Mind or Oklahoma. Excellent. Well, spoilers ahoy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, so I, I, I did this all in one day. Um, I watched uh, Beautiful Mind, which is a Ron Howard movie. I have a sort Russell of... Crow is the yes, Russell Crowe? Yes, Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly. I have a sort of love-hate relationship with Ron Howard. It's, there are some films of his that I think are just brilliant. Uh, Cocoon, one of them, the uh, that racing movie. Rush. Rush, Rush is, is so just good. Rush feels like a different director. Has been in my Netflix queue for about a year, and I've yet to press play on it for reasons that are just simply there's too much content. So. Right. Even the Pavarotti documentary is actually pretty compelling. I've heard so. my wife saw that the other week at the Italian Film Festival and raved about it. So it's um, so yeah, love hate. Beautiful Mind is interesting because it is. Ron, for me, it's Ron Howard in both camps. Okay. It's it's a, a, the first hour of the movie is the Ron Howard type movies I really enjoy, and the second half is a bit more of a slog. Right. <laughs> However, tying into I'm thinking of ending things, it takes a scene from uh, from Beautiful Mind near the end of the movie, and repeats it verbatim mm. it's a it's a speech that's all I'll, all I'll say but it just takes the speech and just uses it every single word in um, I'm thinking of ending things and which I had no idea it was a strange piece of writing that didn't fit with the rest of the film when yeah, I saw yeah, it that's and it. it wasn't until afterwards that it was like oh that's where <laughs> Yeah, and um, so I'm glad I saw it. it. It definitely added to the third film. Then the second film, Oklahoma, which is, uh, the, the songs are fantastic. It's uh, made in 1955, directed by Fred Zinnemann. 
And um, so the songs are great. The story of Oklahoma <laughs> is one of the most flimsy, disposable things I've ever seen. <laughs> Have you seen the bandwagon? They have a song about buying shoes in it. <laughs> I I really like the bandwagon. I, I, I like the bandwagon too. I'm just saying musicals aren't really known for their True. you know it's, gritty, intricate narratives. A lot True. of musicals that do just hangs on. I have seen Oklahoma on stage, and I do remember thinking back that there was. I spent most of the time. There was one actor who was an incredibly good actor on there, and I've kind of watched him. But most of the songs were in one ear and out the other. Right. Well, the, the story essentially is just about a bunch of townsfolk who are going to a dance. Yeah, and <laughs> that's it. That is the story. If it wasn't for Rod Steiger um, playing Judd, I believe is the character's name, who's the uh, the handyman. Um, uh, the most interesting character, Janitor the ones again, type. the one on stage. Yeah, that I yeah. he he's sort of the the bad guy, but bad guy with a reason, and mm. his is so compelling. He takes you through the film. If that didn't exist, if his character wasn't there, and they even removed his song too. It's um, if that wasn't there, then it yeah, I don't, I, I would have enjoyed the songs, but right. <laughs> um, how Oklahoma ties into I'm Thinking of Ending Things, and you notice how I am not going to spoil I'm Thinking of Ending Things because I think it's almost impossible to do, is that when there's a part when the characters in I'm Thinking of Ending Things arrive at the, um, at the house where uh, one of the main characters' family are. Right. It's um, while waiting for the family members to arrive, he puts on a piece of music or a piece of music is on in the uh, in the lounge. And this music is from the fantasy dance dream sequence of Oklahoma. It's about six or seven minutes long. I, um, t- truth be told, did fast forward through some of it while watching Oklahoma <laughs> because it was just a whole bunch of dance that, thankfully, I stopped in the main part when Judd's character came into it. Into the, the, at, but having a piece of music that is a, of a dream also builds into mm. the idea and the story. Isn't, of, isn't the, I, and I may be misremembering, but aren't they also putting on Oklahoma as the musical at the high school yes, in the they, film? Yes, they are at the end. It's so at the end, one of the main characters of I'm Thinking of Ending Things plays the character of Judd that we just spoke about and sings the song that is not in the movie. And from then, from there, once finished then goes and does the speech from A Beautiful Mind. (laughs) (laughs) We probably should have made this a ludicrously specific episode unto itself. Films which are nested into each other like a Russian uh, (laughs) Matryoshka doll. And then there's there's, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which I don't know that I understood it, but I really enjoyed it. Mm. I was along for the phantasmagorical ride of it. I thought the I'm I'm a built-in audience for a Charlie Kaufman movie. It's so, and I will accept a lot more than your average film goer will for that sort of thing. I really enjoyed it. I didn't understand all that much of it, but I it, but certainly 
watching the two other films actually gave me a little bits, little hints to help make sense to help of make sense yeah. of something and to it's and I definitely came on the idea that it is it's a much more allegorical film it's not mm. certainly what you are seeing is not necessarily what it is yeah well, and the performances yeah. are just tremendous Tony Collette <laughs> Tony Collette and David Thewlis are fantastic and there's a little bit of subliminal um I it, I don't believe it's a spoiler, but it's um, when they meet they, um, the characters of Tony Collette and David Thewlis. So Jesse Plemons, I, we should go back. Maybe Jesse Plemons yeah. and I forget the female uh, Jesse Buckley. Is that her name? I think it is. Yes. Yeah. So the two of them are on a road trip. They've been dating for a little bit. They're going to meet his parents, and they drive through the snow. Yes. And they get there, and they drive away. Yes, and that's is, essentially the story. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> but there's the, yeah. there's an amazing bit. Uh, well, um, it's a blink and you miss it bit where they um, the parents open the door at the beginning um, to let them in. We see the the father for a second looks about 80, 90 years old. Yeah, just for a second. And then he's not. Then he's the age he normally is, which would be in his 50s. And I doubted... I had to rewind, because I doubted I saw that. I wasn't... Did I see that? Did I not? And that's that also sums up a lot of um, what, what goes on in that movie. Did you see it? Did you not? Did you understand what you saw? I think it's great. I, I've enjoyed it very, very much. So my thematic end to, like, to talk about that film in a way without spoiling like my ultimate interpretation of it which Mm -hmm. i have a more specific one but i think generally the film is about to a huge extent what we are made of is um what we bring into our lives the memories we have Mm -hmm. and the media we consume Mm -hmm. and there's a there's a double act going on because charlie kaufman has written this character who's really into Oklahoma and mm-hmm. a beautiful mind. And we see watching a movie one day at his job, who, which is like kind of a bad, like Miramax, more like a Miramax August release. Mm. That's kind of, you know, not, not kind of like when indie films were kind of just unambitious mainstream films. The Robert was still a bit sacri- Yes. Oh. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> and, um, but also, He's embedded, um, there's a book in, um, at one point, uh, Jesse Buckley goes into Jesse Plemons' character's old bedroom, and there's a book by this um, esoteric sci-fi writer, Anna Kavan, called Ice. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple other spines in there, I can't remember what. Um, but there is no way that anyone would write that character to be mm-hmm. the fans of those things and then have that book. And then there's also a scene in the car where they start talking about John Cassavetes, a woman under the influence. And Jesse Buckley's character goes on to quote several paragraphs out of Pauline Kael's review of a woman mm-hmm. under the influence. Again, a reference that that character is unlikely to have, but a reference that Charlie Kaufman has probably internalized mm. long ago. And so... It's this level of the to the extent that he's being judgmental to his characters, um, which because they're Midwesterners and you can say that sort of thing about him. Mm. But he's also embedded all this stuff to bring that judgment 
back onto himself and say, look, it doesn't matter where you sit in this thing. My point isn't that this person's references are lame and uncultured and mine are cool and clever. Mm. It's that ultimately this is this is what we are, is this stuff that kind of we've poured into us and clung onto for whatever reason. So... Um, yeah, it was it was a really strange film for me because it touched on a lot of stuff that was emotionally difficult, and I mm-hmm. I wound and I wound up not rating it because I just I just don't even know how to yes. think about it, and and then also because I hadn't seen a Beautiful Mind or Oklahoma either, and I'm like maybe I need to go see those and come back, and now I feel like I don't necessarily, but no, well, at least I get it a bit more, just a little bit extra, and I mean there's also a a focal character that um, we haven't even mentioned yet, which is mm. um, is just this old guy. Mm. And and again, I'm not going to say more on that. It's, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, Doug mentioned... It, I, I yeah. wasn't really going to give my interpretation of it other than I really enjoyed it. I agree with a lot of what Doug just said, but it's. I think it's, it's a film where... It's a, one of those movies where it's really... There will be many, many different interpretations because yeah. there's so much to chew on. Mm. It's um, I yeah. I wonder <laughs> if seeing three movies like that in one day was, was a large ask. Yeah, it might have been. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I haven't seen any of them, but I'm just sitting here smiling politely, yes. going, "I have no idea what's going on." I think it's right yeah. Now. I think it's time. I think it's time to move on. And uh, yes. well, you're I will pass the talk. The I will note, note that none of those movies have ninjas in them, so they're no. probably not your speed. Well, <laughs> oh. oh, well, oddly enough, one of the three movies I'm going to talk to him about, about today does have ninjas in it. Only one. Okay. Only one, but I will. Um, come back to that one because uh, is it Five Element Ninjas? It's not. I okay. noticed you saw Five Element Ninjas. Yeah. I spotted you were doing seeing that after I talked about it. Did you enjoy it? I fucking did. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> no, I said because of Doug, I went and watched uh, Flying Guillotine two in the last couple of weeks as well, which is fantastic. Together we can make a difference. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I've actually had quite a lot to choose from because in the last since the last record, uh, I took a week off work basically to do nothing and watch movies and and do some work around the house and, and you ran achieved, out of nothing done, didn't so, I? I, I watched, achieved all of that I watched a lot apart from doing stuff around the house which I ignored entirely I watched I think 27 movies in 7 days uh, including uh, a 24 hour run over 2 days which turned into a 27 hour run that was a challenge, another online challenge Mr. Ryan Chatterway on Twitter who does the 24 hour movie challenge each year it was his 10th anniversary so I thought mm. I'd just run along on this one he gave no no uh, criteria, no genres. He just said free format, and so I really did free format. Uh, but I started that off with Psycho Gorman. Oh yeah, which yeah. is on Shudder, and really, really enjoyed it. Despite the fact that there's certain things in that movie that normally I would have utterly hated in other movies, such as an incredibly <laughs> smart-ass <laughs> teenage character that in most movies you, you you basically want to reach into the screen and smack around the head. Is she a teenager? I don't know. Oh, I probably preteen, she... probably. But yeah, preteen. Preteen. But yeah. you you just in most movies, if you have that, that oh, yeah. smart-ass character that is never that gets away with everything and faces mm. no consequences for being a bitch, and it's. It's impossible not to like her in this film. So, well, I mean, basically, the concept of PG Psycho Goreman yeah. is if E.T. was a malevolent demon from hell <laughs> and was um, found uh, by 
a girl who is a malevolent kid from yeah. Earth. Exactly. <laughs> from Earth hell. And yes. then is under her control. And yeah. yeah, got it in one. It is, it's... It's on Shutter. It's if you've got Shutter, you've got to go see this oh, one. You guys saw this trem- before Shutter. I, think. I saw it at Terrify, Terrify last year, and I mean, I literally hurt from smiling. <laughs> oh, it was, just, it, is... it was at a low point. I think it was shortly after the second COVID lockdown, and yeah, I, it's, uh, some stuff going on with um, people in my life who were not well, and I was in a bad place, and I just went in and just like felt the weight just lift away mm. and it was that sort of cleansing <laughs> joyful you know that what's the magic of the movies you know it's that <laughs> absolutely and yeah. it's that Saturday, it's got that sort of saturday morning cartoon almost it sort is. of i mean just the mighty morphin power rangers yeah. and aliens and sit, sit in one of those weird universes with weird things happen and people just kind of go oh okay <laughs> we'll accept that yeah it's it's in a weird kind of kind of interesting part of suburbia when you know your, your kid gets yeah. turned into a weird blob monster still got to oh, clean his room yes, the weird, oh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's fine you the know? dad is is almost at homer levels of oh, dumb but almost yeah, yeah. in a slightly gra- more grounded way than he's, a cartoon he's, he's he's a he's a he's a great dad while being the worst dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it, it's just i mean the writing in this one just just works so well that you've got yeah. all these characters that could literally be the worst people you've ever hung out with mm. for an hour and a half and instead it's just it's just a real fun movie oddly enough not the one I want to talk about because I want to talk about <laughs> the one I watched after that sneaky <laughs> which was Don't Let the River Beast Get You oh, oh yes now that one I had actually made a rule for myself on my 24 hour day uh, weekend was that once a movie finished I had two minutes from the time the credits finished rolling to put another movie on if I didn't choose a movie in two minutes I had to put on the emoji movie so I chose <laughs> really, really quickly. And I went to put on, uh, I How believe... How did you cook? How did I cook? I had a pizza order already on the way. Oh, okay. I had things already pre-prepped. I thought about this one. Right. I planned for this. There I, was no emoji movie. There was no emoji movie not? over the next two days. But <laughs> I was going to put on Death Promise. And I went to it, and I had bookmarked on every streaming service as many movies as I wanted to watch in there that I could potentially fit into this. And I couldn't remember which of the... Th- three or four streaming services I had it was on and after a minute I quickly frantically went back to Prime Video and slammed it on Don't Let the River Beast Get You <laughs> and it is a movie that Doug recommended it is the epitome of hey let's put on a show <laughs> it, it feels like it should have been filmed in a barn with Mickey Rudy bandwagon and yes yeah. exactly Mickey and Judy should have been doing this one because it's it's such a, a labour of love of the people that made it yes. you can tell they really love making movies for a start and it's very much a fledgling effort. There's 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 some scenes in there which, to be honest, ten minutes of that could have been hacked out of it quite easily, and it wouldn't have made a damn bit of difference. But once again, it's a it's a fairly feel good movie. It's it's got a river beast in it that barely shows up in it for half the movie. Yeah, it's got every member of the guy's family. I can tell because there's people in this that are not actors. <laughs> I'm looking at you, sheriff. There are people I that really aren't actors. No, <laughs> <laughs> they're acting as, as actors, but possibly there's, there's not acting like okay. actors. <laughs> and has the most wonderfully awkward dance number I've ever seen and I mentioned on Twitter and I immediately had a defender of the film going don't you def- defame the, the muddy bottom stomp and it's not the muddy bottom stomp but that should be preserved in the Smithsonian that's all <laughs> right sorry to... have you not seen Get Evan yes I've seen Get Evan then you have seen a more awkward dance I don't know I think oh, it's got to be a tie because we might have a <laughs> yes the shimmy shake is <laughs> we awkward. might have another episode here <laughs> but, a, but an, an, <laughs> a song which has basically been sung and has somebody just 
dancing along next to him oh, in a God. park while a huge crowd of six people approach. <laughs> and then later in the movie, there's that same six people watching them dance again. So mm, there's a the movie made. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'm getting an acid flashback here. And I, it's, yeah, you oh, are. Yeah. It's just it's... a wonderfully, it's kind of like, now just dance the song. But I don't know if he was actually <laughs> playing anything live at the time because it's just making some rhythmic body movements. <laughs> But yeah, the Muddy Bottom Stomp that later on is is a fantastic song that that just pops out of nowhere, slows the movie down, and is absolutely perfect. And if you didn't have the Muddy Bottom Stomp in there, this, the movie would not be worth watching in that middle section. But it's it's I mean plot wise, there's a river beast, and people say occasionally, "Don't let the river beast get you." There's a reporter. There's, there's a reporter. Like, yeah. There's some people in town, and there's a guy that comes back to town. There's some tutoring. There's, yeah, he yeah, comes back because he's there's he's, like a lot of tutoring. There is a lot. He's of the Patrick tutoring. Swayze of Roadhouse of tutoring. He's like the one that they go, "Oh, that's he's the best tutor I've ever seen." You're the best tutor I've ever seen. No, you're the best tutor. But and then the river beast turns up, and quite a quite a, a fun little costume that they've they whipped together. And anytime someone says, don't let the river beast get you, that person's probably going to get got by the yeah. river beast. So it does what it says in the tin. And then it get, the movie ends and then it goes for another five minutes as they do a, an incredibly pointless scene at the end. And I'm just going, you just roll the credits. <laughs> what was you the thing it? you said about the <laughs> um, the cafe? The uh... Uh, What did I say about the cafe at the time? Oh, something about that um, the... Um... Oh, the, the production yes. design in the cafe. Well, they yes. went to a cupcake cafe. <laughs> And they're sitting there with their cupcakes, and the cupcakes are sitting on the table without plates. So whoever the production designer was, who went, can we have some plates? No. Okay, we'll just put them on the table. So three guys having a discussion about tutoring with cupcakes sitting on it. It's the worst cafe I've ever seen. So there, there's definitely, it has a couple of... of You've never seen Cafe flaws. Flesh, have you? <laughs> oh dear! It has a few technical flaws, but it's 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 if you're on Prime and you've yeah. got some time to waste, it's got so much heart. Actually, like yeah. that, because when I saw you watch that back to back with Psycho Gorbin, I'm like, that's sort of almost a perfect feel good double feature. It was of monster <laughs> movies and horrendous violence. Oh, when I followed up with Death Promise, which is just an oh, 80s yes. grindhouse. I haven't seen Death that's Promise. Fun. Yeah. It's fun. fun, but it's it's a it's a distinct neck snapping change of pace. Don't let the river just get you. It's a feel crap movie, right? <laughs> but uh, that's uh, so I'm going to go nice and quick on this one because uh, since we went so long on this time, so I'm going to pass on to Doug. Yeah, um, I will. Um, I will go for a Chilean documentary because, of course, Woo! I will. Well, uh, <laughs> the um, that is coming out, out August 5th and is oh. really fucking good. Uh, Madman's putting it out. I'm not paid by Madman. Um, but if you're listening, hi, you can sponsor us. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that would mean, but, you know, whatever. Probably just send us some um, I already see the free movies. So, uh, anyway. Uh, we'll watch what you got. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what I, it's called The Mole Agent, and it was nominated mm. for Best Documentary at the Academy Awards this year, despite being an international film, which is quite rare. But this year they had two um, foreign language films that were nominated for Best documentary the other one was collective which i think i've talked about a couple months ago um and this isn't about carcinoma or melanoma type no. detectives and i i actually made the joke to my wife like oh, oh i do love a good chicken mole uh, <laughs> so the story of um the mole agent is simply that a private detective has been hired uh by a woman who thinks that her mother is being maltreated at a retirement care facility. Oh. And so as the film begins, 
with a bit of snazzy photography and kind of, you know, kind of um, private eye music, um, you have a lobby full of people who have answered a want ad for a person in their 80s to 90s who is good with technology um, and interested in some work that will enroll in this retirement facility for three months and and see whether or not this the woman in question is being treated badly and um and the first 10 or 15 minutes when this is set up is hilarious in part because of getting 84 year olds to learn how to use spy glasses and (laughs) facetime and all of these sorts of things and also just kind of the whole um the conceit is and i don't want to spoil too much about how it's all set up for anyone who would watch it but it's it, they've got, clearly gone to a lot of effort to make sure that nobody in the nursing home is going to know. And that, but there's just going to be this documentary crew that's already there for other reasons. And there's going to be Sergio, the 83-year-old who comes in and tries to find out, um, who, who is quickly confronted by the fact that there are only four men in there and 45 women, and they all kind of look the same. <laughs> because they're all reta- or quite, quite a few of them do. Um and so it kind of modulates tone from there to something a bit more wistful. Interestingly, it's a G-rated movie. So if you're expecting that this is going to turn into a really grisly investigation into nursing care facilities, um, I guess you'd be disappointed. But I, I, w- I mean, I was quite relieved. And in fact, I don't think they probably could have released the film <laughs> given that mm. the clandestine way in which it was made without mm-hmm. the facility ultimately signing off on it. But, um, yeah, it's just spending the time with Sergio as he takes his job quite seriously, gets to know the people in the home, and basically raises the question, is the neglect happening in the home, or is the neglect the fact that these people have been put in here and separated from their family who have Mm -hmm. neglected them in the first place? Um, There's something, it's, it's something that's quite resonant for me for lots of reasons and it didn't quite destroy me emotionally and i'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing like i i like you know i i thought it might go there and it didn't but it um but i still think it's it's interesting i came out i'm like i'd recommend it to anybody and then i overheard somebody in the theater being like well i don't know if i'd recommend that to many people and i think if you've been in the situation particularly putting one of your loved ones into a care facility it's quite confrontational in that mm. regard, but fundamentally the character relationships are really what it's about. It's it's ten percent an issue movie and ninety percent a character movie, and it's yeah really good. I rated it highly. I think there's a, there's a lot of good documentaries coming up, and a lot of ones that seem to have come. Have you seen the Sparks documentary yet? The no, oh, no, no that just came out last week. Yeah, the I've been Edgar hearing good things Sparks about that. Yeah. So um, that's going on to Prime, is it? Or? I believe so. So it Amazon might be Prime Amazon, or Amazon, Amazon, Amazon Prime. Oh, okay. Amazon Prime, probably. I, I th- yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm expecting that if it if it is an Amazon one, it might make okay. it out here onto you know Prime U, uh, Video in New Zealand as well. So that mm. I mean, once again, a band I know of one song, but I'll be right. fascinated to see uh, an in depth look into someone that technically every all the musician seems to love, and every part of the public is just like who. Yeah, so, and it's Edgar Wright directing, and, yeah. and 
And yeah. um, uh, Leonard Moulton is now a convert uh, to the Spars, to Sparks <laughs> yeah. music. Well, they also wrote the music for Annette, which is the movie that, that uh-huh. opened. Uh, yeah, and that movie is supposed to appear on Amazon Prime in August as well. So right. may, I don't know if there's a crossing Sounds of wires so or, if they've, or if Amazon well Prime has just like invested heavily in Sparks' <laughs> futures. We, uh, we will do some research on that and, and find you and tell it what you uh, tell you. But yeah, you but I, th- I think there are still a few screenings coming up around the country at various places of the Sparks Brothers documentary. Um, you're number two. Right. My number two. So to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Numbers two through seven. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's... I'll mention um, uh, the Academy had been doing um, some amazing stuff recently. Um, I happened to inadvertently do a Mia Farrow double feature, which uh, consisted of uh, Purple Rose of Cairo, 1985, and Secret Ceremony, 1968. Oh, God, I wanted to see that so bad when I was double booked. It's just... Wow. <laughs> That's a film that in a Kirla Janice's um, House of uh, Something Woman. Oh, right. I can't remember what that book's called. But, Was it? Oh, right. I've um, read that, that book and yeah, I didn't uh, I'm pretty didn't sure it's remember. in there. Right. Psychotic Woman? Yes, House yeah. of Psychotic Woman. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, Purple Rose of Cairo, Woody Allen. Um, it was one I saw um, way back. Um, yeah. On, uh, I think I saw it on TV, and I loved it then. And I wondered, uh, never seen it again since. Wondered if it would hold up, and I, I love it even more. It's, mm. it is a brilliantly clever comedy about a an unsatisfied woman. Um, her husband is pretty much a louse, played by Danny Aiello. Um, it's set in the 30s, too. I'm like, 30s? Yes, I think it's the 30s, uh, going through the Depression. Um, and th- so things aren't, um, aren't great for her, but she loves the movies, goes along, and she sees a particular movie about seven times. While she's watching it for the seventh time, uh, the uh, Jeff Daniels character in the movie... Um, stops what he's saying to the other actor and turns around and talks to Mia Farrow and says, wow, you must really love this movie. You've been in here seven times. And uh, and then decides to leave the screen and, um, and run away with it, essentially. And things get more complicated from there. <laughs> It's, one of the things I really love about this film is the fact that never for a second does it allow you to think that it's just a dream because we have scenes with the um, with the manager of the movie house trying to deal with the fact that he has to keep mm. this movie running because he can't turn off the film because the guy won't get back in. <laughs> and, the, and you've got the, um, the cast... Are in the movie talking to the audience members or talking to themselves saying well where's he gone and all this sort of stuff <laughs> and you've got studio heads having to deal with the situation as well while we've got a um, a sort of kitchen sink drama situation with Mia Farrow and her thuggish husband and the whimsical love story that she has with her uh, with Jeff Daniels as the 
as the character that stepped down from the movie. However, there's also the Jeff Daniels, who is the actual actor, who accompanies the studio. Oh, right. I, forgot. <laughs> I, I did, like, all the Woody Allens that were out in, like, the mid-90s and, like, a big mm-hmm. run, and so I saw it then, and I haven't seen yeah, it. Yeah, I've probably for, like, seen it for 20-odd years yeah. as well. I remember the Monty and TV and screen. it's now, just... Though. It has all the, it hits all the sort of Woody Allen type beats. It's got the, um, it, it's got the old fashioned music all the way through, but this time it actually makes more sense because it's in the 1930s. It's, um, and it has that sort of um, happy sad that uh, he goes in for all the time. And there's a great adjunct film to this, which is worth tracking down. Um, it was on Netflix briefly, but I just checked and it's gone. But it's a Polish film that Second Run put out on DVD as well called Escape from the Liberty Cinema. Uh, and it's set in 1990. And it uses a relatively similar conceit. And about the time that you think that maybe they, that Woody Allen should sue, they actually name drop Purple Rose of Cairo. Oh, wow. But, then they, it's, but it's, it's similar, but it's different. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's a really terrific... What's that title again? Escape from the Liberty Cinema. Um, Excellent. Because the, the Liberty Cinema is this film where this is showing... Um, yeah, I don't want to spoil a thing about it. No, well, uh, fair enough. Yeah. I will look. But if you're, if you're on a, um, a fluid boundary between screen and cinema kind of uh, yeah, yeah. what's that Jeff Daniels movie yeah. with the, um, the the black and white Pleasantville yes Pleasantville, Pleasantville. Yeah. yeah which makes me think that maybe they chose him for his connection <laughs> yeah, to yeah. Purple Rose I don't know if you play Purple Rose of Cairo backwards you get the last action hero I believe so <laughs> <laughs> oddly enough <laughs> oh sorry he's getting mixed up with the last Boy Scout <laughs> <laughs> no no you gotta, you gotta cut it up in animal violence yeah <laughs> Oh, yes. yeah. So that was a double feature with Secret Ceremony, or no? Secret the- Ceremony, which yeah. is just has that wonderful sort of seventies twisted feel to it. It's um, you're not sure what you're watching or why you're watching it for a lot of the a lot of the screen time. Um, the arch- the where it's set, the architecture of the of the home is absolutely amazing. Is it mostly a one-location film, then? Mostly. I mean, they do move around a bit, but there is a main location, which is this... um, A a friend actually did some um, digging into it, which I I paid no attention to, but it's um, amazing architecture. It's uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Mia Farrow, and Robert Mitchum. Wow. And um, the uh, Mia Farrow and Elizabeth Taylor are playing English, though Elizabeth Taylor's accent changes <laughs> a fair amount. She plays a, a woman who um, lost her daughter uh, through drowning um, quite some time ago. She sees a... Um, a Mia Farrow on a bus and just follows it everywhere um, and uh, eventually um, follows her to her home. Um, uh, uh, Mia Farrow notices that she's following her and they... Um, and Mia Farrow is slightly not all there mm. and... 
um, and thinks, or says she thinks, that um, that she is her mother who um, has been MIA for some time. Right. And um, and so um, and invites her into her home to to stay and look after her and. And things get weird and twisted, and then Robert Mitchum turns up, and things get way weird, <laughs> way twisted. And it's just that lovely—I say lovely, but for me it is—that lovely seventies unsettled yeah. feeling. It's—it uh, doesn't leave you in a joyous, happy kind of way, but why should it? It's the seventies. Yeah. It's not. It's nineteen sixty-eight. So we're we're heading towards right. the seventies. Right. We're on the precipice. We're on the <laughs> precipice. But uh, yeah, um, great films. I, I enjoyed them both. Over to you, Skeet. Okay. Well, um, let's get and get back to uh, Doug's uh, not the International Film Festival over at the Skeet, <laughs> not the not the International Film Festival, which I already started. Uh, so I start off with Kung Fu Hustle. I did another film which uh, with ninjas, which I will talk about shortly, and then I did a uh, one of Doug's challenges was a uh, a New, uh, New Zealand feature and a New Zealand documentary. So I did uh, the Chills, the Triumph and Tragedy of ah, yes. uh, Martin, Martin Phillips, Phillips. which yes. is very very good and well worth watching. Mm-hmm. But then I actually had to throw in an extra film because uh, yesterday Richard Donner passed away, mm-hmm. uh, and in the last the in that, that twenty seven films that I did in that one week, I had watched. Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon 2, and Lethal Weapon 3. And yes, I had Lethal Weapon 4 on there, which I've never actually watched, but I was, I've, I've still got it around. I've got a copy now, and I'm going to be having a look at that at some stage. But after he passed away, I had to do a tribute film, so there was the the special screening, 10 o'clock in the morning, in my living room, of Maverick, which, oh, which from 1994. Maverick ah. is... I can't believe you've never seen that one. It is mm. just one of the... To, to borrow a Darren phrase, a warm hug of a movie. It's mm-hmm. one of the most friendliest and lightliest, funniest comedies, I reckon, of the 90s. Because the... The trailer screened recently at the Hollywood, and it was yeah. quite engaging. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the characters, are so, once again, were so well written. You've got Mel Gibson as... Jodie Foster Maverick. describes him as Brett Maverick, but she describes him as irritatingly likable. And <laughs> unfortunately, it's true. That's Every, it. But everyone in the cast is perfectly cast to be the perfect perfect for that role and everyone in it is like well Jodie Foster is absolutely hilarious in it uh, and playing a wonderfully a southern belle with a wonky southern accent who's just as much of a you know a, a thieving greedy person as our main character mm. and you love both of them for mm-hmm. it and the James chemistry Garner, between the two, of right? course, who has a major connection, of course, to Maverick, as he was Maverick, was Maverick. in the TV show. And he gets these in this one as well. James Coburn's in there, being James Coburn. Mm-hmm. And well, the riverboat is full of The riverboat is full faces. of, yeah, a ton of... When you get to the, the big set piece at the end of the big poker tournament, there is so many Western acts. I mean, Dub Taylor gets a credit right at the start, yes. and he's literally in it for... About three minutes and barely gets any lines. But he's in it. But he's in it. Dub Taylor's there. to the what sixteen hundred movies that he. Oh yeah, Dub Taylor, who's a, a stalwart of of uh, westerns. But in the middle of it, I completely forgot about Graham Greene, who is he plays the the Indian, mm. you know, the the tribe of the Indian chief, Native American, and you know, wherever you want to put it. But he is the super comic relief in the middle of it, and in a comedy. 
he becomes the heart of the comedy right in the middle. And he's in it for about, what, 20 minutes or so? Mm. And he just takes over the movie. As the moment he turns up there when, you know, Brett Maverick is, is talking to him, he's the only one who can speak in his language, and the first thing he says is, Maverick, have we come up about that money I owed you? And <laughs> he is the a wonderful character in that he's... He's an Indian chief who is sick of being called an Indian chief. Right. He's sick of having to play the war drums because he's getting paid by a uh, a Russian uh, a duke who wants to see the real West. So right. as he puts it, we have to put on the stupid face paint, and I'm sick <laughs> of these stupid drums all the time. <laughs> right. and, I to, and I have to talk to him like he expects, how, white man? So it's it's a, it's a little bit of social commentary in the middle of this this wonderfully warm mm. little ensemble comedy. You've got Alfred Molina is one of the I main. In there. I completely forgot it was Alfred. And Molina. he's one of the the main right. sort of um, bad yeah. bad oh, bad guyish bad guyish. He's he's there. You know he's you know he's he's definitely kind of as the bad guy, but more kind mm. of. The, Oh, well, listen to the riverboat. I've just looked up on IMDb. Thank you, IMDb. <laughs> you could sponsor us too if you like. <laughs> um, so we've got James Coburn uh, is one of the major players in, in the on the riverboat. You've also got Dub Taylor, as previously mentioned. There's Jeffrey Lewis. Oh wow! Paul Al Smith of Bluto and uh, oh, yeah. Sunny Boy and other things. Dan Hedier. There's um, of um, well, so many great so many things. things. Yeah, yeah. It's um, Denver Pyle, who is the uh, the granddad in um, oh, Uncle Jesse in um, Dukes of Hazard. There's uh, Dennis Fimple, who I recognise the face, but don't I think we're just name. starting to make up names. No, Waylon Jennings is in there in a cameo. Art Lafleur, and there's a wonderful cameo that I won't mention until yeah. you watch the movie, but it's accompanied by a nice little sting of music that mm. it's just just amazing, yeah, amazing was, cast. It is yeah. just it is it is a, a warm hug of the and movie. It's, it's one of my favourite parts of movies. Yeah. It's a it's a road movie in a different genre. It's basically a western road movie because you know you literally start off with. Mel Gibson sitting on a horse being hung and it's the first hour of the movie is how you got to this point as he sort of says well it's been a terrible week and you flash back <laughs> and get up to this point there and then the second half of the movie is almost an entirely separate it just feels like you've got two episodes of a series you know you should have it should right. fade out in the middle of it and then you should get some ads and come back and uh, previously on that <laughs> Well, that might be your homework. Uh, I, think, there, I think you should definitely watch Maverick. It's, yeah, it's, I might wait till after the. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna say I, I might wait till after the twenty-four hour movie marathon because oh, if anyone's gonna, uh, yeah, gonna play, play a, a, a yes, Donner. Richard Donner tribute, you know, that's a good point. I, if, it, if it comes up again, I'll be quite happy to watch it for a second. And if they play Goonies, I'll get a nap. <laughs> so, oh, I, oh, oh. I thought you were gonna say you might wait until after Skeets has actually seen um, Raging, Raging Bull. Bull. No, because I do want to see it. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to see it before I die. Touche. So. <laughs> um, well, I'll, on, on the category of feel-good movies that are one word that start with M, um, I'll go on to Manhunter. Oh wait, no, it's not feel-good. It oh, it is feel so, great. I oh, love it. It's well, so it, enjoyable. It, In a um, <laughs> in the wrong kind of way. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, th- yeah, Darren wants to talk about this one too because we we sat next to each other at this screening, <laughs> and um, so the Hollywood's been doing this Michael Mann season, and unfortunately, I wasn't able to get to 
Collateral or Miami Vice. Collateral, I've seen four times in love. Miami Vice, I saw once and I thought was okay, but would like to revisit. Mm-hmm. But um, and it's worth it. Manhunter, I saw um, once on DVD a couple years ago because we were gearing up. Uh, Sarah got to interview Brian Cox for a um, when he was here for Churchill and did, did a film talk with him, which was really cool. And so we watched Manhunter, which I had never seen, and I thought it was interesting, but it didn't really work for me. I couldn't get my head kind of around some of the choices. I wasn't that familiar with the source material. I'd seen Red Dragon like in 2004 on TV in a room where lots of people were talking and I didn't really remember it. And I haven't seen the Hannibal show. So the source material wasn't that familiar and kind of... And William Peterson's performance in particular I just found Uh. so vacant and it's just very confusing and um i had a very similar experience to doug the first time i saw it too yeah and i and we talked about this actually at the cinema and um and seeing it on the i i don't know how much of it was seeing it on the big screen and seeing it for the second time uh but it's really clear that you know the william peterson performance in particular is a feature and not a bug because this isn't somebody who's a vacant actor. This is a human being who's been hollowed out and has nothing left Mm -hmm. except the one thing that he's good at, which is becoming horrible people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and you have this and then you have Michael Mann's just, um, full, you know, I, I, I feel like, um, the style here is just so, well suited to the material and um you know as so many of his later films get into this sort of overshooting abstraction thing and he was still at a stage in his career where he didn't have um the ability to shoot for six thousand days and use 30 million cameras Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of quite thoughtful long camera movements or setups um and and that kind of those moments of stillness in the Tangerine Dream. Is it actually Tangerine Dream that does the soundtrack? Or is it just Tangerine Dream-esque? It's, it's I know they did the sound- Tangerine I know they did the soundtrack to Thief, but I don't know if they did the one to Manhunter as well. I'm not 100 Or it might have been sure. one of the guys. But either way, it's this, you know, this pulsing synth and the neon colors of it. But, um, and then just the, the loneliness that's pervasive through it. You know, you have, um, Tom Noonan's character, you have um, um, not Helen Hunt, Joan Allen. Um, Joan Allen, who's um, a blind character who turns up into it, which is actually, I mean, apart from, I think pe- people in 2021 would be like, oh, you should have cast a blind actress. That aside, like, I thought it was a really strong representation of a blind Absolutely. character. But also just the, the other thing I love about Michael Mann films is the sheer joy he takes in watching people do their jobs well. Like, there's so much of this film that's just like, we have this note, we've taken it from Lecter's cell, we have 45 minutes to do forensics on it before we have to get it back there, Be and he notices. So let's do those forensics. And it's just watching these people mm-hmm. do this work. And, and sometimes, you know, you get... Um, films that portray something that's technically cutting edge and then you get 40 years into the future and it feels really dated you know like the mm. anderson tapes i watched not too long ago and it's like we now have surveillance video and <laughs> and, and it just it's really clunky but this even though i presume a lot of the technology is quite 
dated at this mm. point. It's still watching people who are passionate about their work do their job doesn't age, even if mm. the technical revelations of what they can do through their work ages. So it's yeah. also worth noting that they were doing their work not in a montage, which would be the way it would be shown. <laughs> that might be true as well. Yeah, you see, you see all of this in real time. You see the process in real time, mm-hmm. and the moment where they—it's um, uh, the night of the full moon. He's been killing on full moons. They know it's going to happen. And they put the pieces together, and it's Dennis Farina, who's so good in oh, this. Oh, gosh. He's yeah. so... It, it was interesting, because I saw Out of Sight a few weeks prior on the same screen, mm-hmm. which I, I won't talk about too much, because you might, but if not, um, is fantastic. Completely but he's, forgot that he's one on my such a, <laughs> He's such an amazing smartass in this film, and he's completely straight in this film, and mm-hmm. it, and and plays both of those things so... Perfectly, and you know he always looks the same. He's one of those actors that always—you're never like—is that anyone else in the world besides Dennis Farina? No, it's Dennis Farina. You know, it's like Adam Driver or somebody. You never get confused. But didn't Michael yeah. Mann create um, Crime Story, the one starring yeah, yeah. Dennis Farina? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. which I, I haven't seen actually. So, no, um, not yeah, funny, actually. no, I, I was actually—I should look into that because I did recently think, oh, maybe I'll go watch a bunch of Dennis Farina films. And I was really shocked at actually how relatively thin his filmography of good films is um, and how few of them he has really substantive parts in. So There is a, one he stars in, is it with Bette Midler or something? Or something where it's a couple arguing in the mall? Big Business or something? Oh, scenes from, are, they, are they in Scenes from a Mall together? Or is it a different one? I think that's the one, yeah. Oh, maybe it's... I haven't seen that film, but All I right. think... It's, I could be mangling that with something else. <laughs> yeah, well, not the it's, first time that would have happened. But. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite possible. <laughs> anyway, it's probably too late to um, promote this uh, round, but the, uh, the latest email from The Hollywood said that there will be a second round of uh, Man coming soon, and certainly between um, The Keep and Heat and The Insider uh, and Ali, mm. um, there is no shortage of... Um, other decent options. So um, if you're seeking that like us and you're just another manhunter, hey, then... <laughs> and not enough, I think the one that I was wanting to see, I probably ended up being scheduled to work during, of course, which would have been uh, Last of the Mohicans. That's the oh, Sunday. Yeah, yes. This Sunday I'm, coming up, which unfortunately I am, there I am, for that. I am working the Sunday. Because That's I'm another one that hates I... my moving going. So. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen once on video and I wasn't wasn't blown away by but i oh, kind of feel like well i think i wore out a vhs tape because right both myself and dawn uh, love that movie and have watched it multiple times and it's i was thinking you know if i had a chance on the sunday it's I a great adventure film. to see it as well because i think it's it's a adventure film that you know coming on 12 and a half in towards 13 i think it would be the perfect time to be introduced to something like that and right. it was one of those trailers that played constantly every and and um, uh, a friend and i we still quote to each other it's um in the wrong accent i will find you it's billy Connolly in that film I, yeah it's uh, because it's still <laughs> for some reason i always done it like are, that. The, are the mohicans from northern England? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear I, I will find you but it's um <laughs> Sorry, I was a little windswept and interesting there, and I made him laugh. Hey, no. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, um, yeah, I'm so looking forward to seeing that on a big screen, which is where it deserves to be seen. 
But um, Manhunter, for me, I'm just going to jump on in here because um, I had a very similar experience to Doug. Um, saw it, watching it on TV, I think it's easy to get distracted. Um, and there it are certain kind of... things that haven't aged well. In particular, there's some weird editing mm. things where they kind of jump cut these wide shots that to kind of condense time. And um, and I think some of the lighting and stuff like that may kind of compresses strangely on in video. And I remember uh, f- it feeling kind of music video-y, uh, yeah. which I didn't get while watching on the big screen. I, I think the fact that you you're Focus is just, I mean, it's you're not going to pull a phone out because I would yell at you. So, uh, <laughs> yell at himself and, and, and then I have to yell at myself and escort myself out of the cinema. And I'm, oh, I'm we don't want to do that again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you out, all right. <laughs> that ACC thing you filed for dragging yourself by the neck. Like, There's just way too much. I thought we weren't going to talk that. about that club. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, it. I just thoroughly enjoyed this the screening of it. It's it was completely compelling. It's the William Peterson's performance, which I thought was vacant originally, is incredibly well judged, mm. and that his intensity and and it ramps up throughout the movie, but he gets more and more intense in every single scene, until that culminates in something that if he wasn't that character he wouldn't have been able to have they wouldn't have been able to have justified that action mm. and i know that probably the people who we're talking to may have seen this by now but fuck it i'm not i'm not giving spoilers well i i didn't see it at the screening but i do remember seeing it after silence of lamb came out so we're talking 1991 ish yeah. and i don't know if i saw it on tv and i remember really enjoying it yeah. But I haven't seen it since. So based on what you've said, I'm going to watch it and go, well, that was a chunk of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! I, but I, we haven't mentioned Brian Cox. Oh, my God. He's and so we good should, because he's, he's, he's actually, once again, like, um, like Anthony Hopkins. He's not in it that much. It must no, be I think a, there's three scenes. But he is just, he, he, he's just all over it. It's, mm. The scenes he's not in, you're remembering how he was previously. Is he Hannibal Lecter in there? Yes. Hannibal yes. Because yes. the only thing that still sticks in my head 20 years later is him sitting in the brightly lit white room, which yes. is the polar opposite of what yeah. you got in the Jonathan Demme film, where it was, everything was dark and dingy and looked like it was shot in the bottom of a, you know, a, a Romanian castle. Mm, and yeah. instead it was just the bright white. And that's, that image stuck with me for a long time. Absolutely. I still remember it now. It's a really interesting... Um, thing about adaptation that you have the Demi movie and the man movie and they're two very different ways i mean obviously they're taking different novels but they're the same author and the same character and the way that they push those in such different directions that still feel so well actualized and of themselves and the brett ratner movie <laughs> I I don't remember much of it other no. than Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> I see, well, yes, and he was a, a real was a Stephen Lane character who's in, yes, yeah. gosh, that was a surprise. But the Brett Ratner film, uh, I I have this thing with Brett Ratner where I don't dislike. Uh, there probably are some I do, but uh, right now I don't think I dislike his films. 
I think they're yeah, good. You'd, you'd just be too busy disliking him as a human being. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But uh, but so I think with him, it's just the films are good, but they don't have that little extra factor to be really good or quite good. I'm not even sure I remember another a Brett Ratner film to care enough about mm. to... <laughs> no, and to, fair enough too. But um, I did want to say about Brian Cox because there was a story that came out in the... Um, interview that my wife did with him mm-hmm. about um, one of the scenes in that cell uh, when he calls uh, Will Graham and uh, when Will Graham picks up the phone um, he improved um, singing a song that was popular at the time I just called to say I love you <laughs> and then um, and apparently man loved it and wanted it in the film but Manhunter really struggled with its budget and he didn't have um you know, heat inside or Ali kind of money at that time. And so um, it didn't make the final cut. Um, it's either that or there was an issue with the song clearance. I can't remember. But either way, um, it was a fun bit of improv that uh, <laughs> <laughs> didn't make it. So I guess now we're passing to, to me. you. Yeah, yes, because yeah. I haven't talked so in a while. No, your no. Voice. <laughs> <laughs> Sit back and relax. <laughs> now... Um, I've seen so many films and so many that I haven't put on my list here, but there's one I saw just only a couple of days ago, which I I feel like I have to talk about, and that is Alice in Wonderland from 1933. Is that the Disney one or is that a different one? No, it is not. The Disney one was the 50s. This was a live-action Alice in Wonderland uh, directed by Norman Z. MacLeod. The co-writer is Joseph L. Mankiewicz. And I'm all about Eve. And <laughs> that's right. And, and also Mank. It's, right. uh, he didn't write Mank, but he, he was involved in it um, by being the title character. Um, this has some such luminaries from 1933, such as Cary Grant as a mock turtle. Wow. Uh, W.C. Fields, <laughs> Gary Cooper, Edward Everett Horton, who uh, did a lot of the Fred Astaire musicals. It's just... Wow. <laughs> it's... I'd, the... Um, the makeup of these characters is designed to look very similar to the illustrations from the original the original um, publishing. The Lewis Carroll. Uh, the Lewis yeah. Carroll. And as therefore, um, a lot of the char- a lot of the actors are unrecognizable. It's uh, Cary Grant is in a, a mock turtle suit. So you've got a, tu- a, a turtle with a cow head as the mock turtle traditionally is. And it, I don't remember Alice in Wonderland lo- well no, enough to remember no. the. Uh, and he that even role, has so a don't look song. At me expectantly. He, oh, a really? song. he sings. So you, it, uh, if you ever want to, <laughs> ever want to listen to Gary Grant sing through a cow's head, <laughs> so cross that off your bucket list. It's like they now. say, there's a movie for everybody. <laughs> you might have been listening, saying, "I don't like any of these movies. Is there one that really meets my needs?" <laughs> it's the one with Cary Grant singing. <laughs> it's um. It doesn't follow... It, it's basically um, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. It's, a, it's The way she gets to Wonderland in the beginning is going through the looking glass. It's um, 
and it doesn't follow both books all that much. It does a lot of its own invention, but it's just really entertaining and weird and has that sort of phantasmagorical kind of feel. It's 1933, so it's pre-code, but it doesn't actually do anything out too outrageous. But it just has that really nice unsettled feel that mm. um, that Alice in Wonderland kind of should have. Yeah, Alice in Wonderland normally should basically have you thinking, wondering what you what you ate or drank or smoked mm. earlier on in the day mm. because... I mean, even the Disney one has got some, you know, weird. We we did that for a second half of Beatles. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. It was kicked off Beatles, yeah. and it it played really well. I mean, Have you seen the Jean Svankmeyer one? Is that the? Is there like a oh, European animation? That is unsettling. I yeah, yeah. think I've, so I'm pretty sure I have because one of my friends has got a huge movie collection, and I think for his daughters, he's collected every. Alice in Wonderland adaption oh, from about wow. 1915 onwards. So there's wow. some There's at least one he should not collect for his daughters. Not that <laughs> one. <No. laughs> I think that one may be in there because I remember looking through it and looking, seeing one that was from a Czech director, and it look, I took a look at the screenshots and I watched yeah, it. Yeah, John Svankmeyer. This yeah. is some weird ass shit going on here. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. But uh, this one, the 1933 version, actually has a animated sequence of the Walrus and the Carpenter. And the animation, uh, it's, again, because they took from the illustrations, it looks not too dissimilar from what was used in the Disney movie. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird and quite compelling and the the girl who plays Alice is quite spunky it's uh, apparently the um, Ida Lupino was meant to uh, auditioned for the role of Alice oh, right. and uh, I just was watched totally... her on Dangerous Ground the other day which oh yeah. wow I do like that film too it's um, but Ida Lupino was told in 1933 that she would look too mature to play Alice so that didn't happen but yeah, it's um, that and so many other films that I won't talk about. <laughs> but I did watch Miami Vice. And, uh, was it Miami Nice? I yes, it was Miami Good. It's um, I, it was Miami very much okay. <laughs> it was Miami Vice cooler. <laughs> so heading back over to me, and yeah. now so as I say, I watch quite a lot of films and I've. One that I do want to talk about is The Ninjas, of course, because since I'm doing my anti-Doug film festival, there is some shit in there, uh, some entertaining shit, hopefully, and some good stuff as well, actually. I'm I'm thinking tomorrow I'm going to be watching The Deadlands, but I'm going to get up because I have not seen The Deadlands, and I'm trying to find a lot of stuff on Beamer Film, which is the the library, Mm. Mm. basically the way of of hiring a DVD from the library now is jumping on Beamer Film, and when I went through some of theirs, that's where I found that Chills documentary, and there's some very, very good-looking stuff on there. But one of Doug's challenges was a future retrospective. So three films that you haven't seen from an Asian director, and I went, well, okay then. <laughs> and I know you're thinking Godfrey Ho, and it's not Godfrey Ho. It's... Um, Thomas the Tang Engine? Not Thomas Tang either, oddly enough. It is um, someone who possibly, I thought, could have been Godfrey Ho under another name, Joseph Lai. <laughs> But then uh-huh. when I look up his, his internet movie database, he's actually Godfrey Ho's producer. 
Which is why they have the same ninja headbands. Same ninja headbands. And this is basically, he directed about 11 films. Some of them with Godfrey Ho, some of them by himself. Some of them presumably just by somebody else that they slap their names on. So he hasn't done too many he likes to lie low. He does like to lie low. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> not even I've got to forgive laugh. myself not at even the end of the day. Laugh, sorry. <laughs> um, but he did a number of uh, films, all with ninjas in them. And the one I started off with out of my three that I'm going to watch of his, it was Ninja Commandments. <laughs> can okay. you recite the ninja commandments I, for me if you watch the film you will learn it because a character gets killed about 10 minutes into it but comes back in a flashback approximately every oh, 6 to 7 minutes to recite another ninja commandment oh brilliant uh, the best way I can describe this is actually to jump onto the internet movie database and read the review which I hopefully still have uh, here because it is absolutely perfect Oh, one this, of the this. commandments, thou shalt ninja. The, you should ninja. I, oh, I think yes, we all should ninja. Uh, there's a couple. There's definitely a couple of reviews. It's this, this one it says is the most helpful review. I make the best eggs, and someday I'll make an egg for you, which was a line from that movie. <laughs> uh, another one, uh, three stars. This is the one. Good for a ninja movie. <clears throat> most ninja movies are terrible. This movie is very good for a ninja movie. The movie has two stories. Number one, ninja bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, the story of a woman with an ugly face. Oh, dear. This is better than other ninja movies. If you like ninja movies, I recommend this movie. Oh, my God. I cannot quite a bit of other stuff in there. Oh, my Lord. I can't work out if that's English as a second language or actually just... (laughs) That's literally that movie summed up in a review. Right. Wow. Like any Godfrey Ho, Thomas Tang, and Joseph Lai film, there's two movies at play. There is the ninja film, which has been shot, and... Bizarrely, they've actually written a script which is the same thing that the actors that have been dubbed are actually saying on screen. I very oh. rarely see this. They actually did write a script. And if you cut out all the stuff that is not a ninja one, you've got a nice tight little 20 minute ninja revenge film. It is, however, cut into a Taiwanese melodrama, oh. which I believe was called Ma Don't Die on Your Back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's. Here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's, the, here's the plot synopsis. <laughs> the Silver Ninja Empire has a big meeting. A ninja master tells his students about two members who have broken out of the ninja commandments and have been cast out, stripped of their ninja powers, and exiled to their birthplace. Those two people are the two from the other movie who don't actually know their ninjas because he's a junk salesman and she's his wife who then he dies because he gets set up and beaten to death and disappears and then he comes back because he's not actually dead but at that stage she's had to rescue their son from a fire so she gets her face burnt and then she tells her son for the rest of his life that she's his aunt because she doesn't want him bullied so there's a whole bullying subplot but every 10 minutes or so you slip back to the ninjas (laughs) and of course Richard Harrison is Ninja Gordon because he's always Ninja Gordon and he goes off to do a ninja mission, which we never see. I'm going to <laughs> defeat the silver ninja. Off he goes. Because he's a good ninja. He's a good ninja. He goes off to defeat another. If we saw oh. him, he would be a bad ninja. That's and then, it. and then another one of the one uh, ninjas who've got a wonderful. So he ninja goes off. Like, he ninjas. He goes and ninjas, and he, he's ninja. But then unfortunately, he's and there's a bad ninja in the group who's got the best ninja name, very Japanese name of Ninja Rodney. <laughs> and Rodney is one of the most Australian ninjas you've ever fucking heard. I'm gonna kill oh, the nice. head ninja because I want to be the head ninja because I'm ninja fucking Rodney, mate. <laughs> and he does. He kills that guy, and Gordon has to come back and then fight his way through all the other ninjas to get to Ninja Rodney. 
And that storyline, it's, it's oddly enough, it's slightly competently well shot, the ninja stuff. The storyline actually makes sense. Probably by accident. As I say, if it was a 20-minute long thing that you found on YouTube, you'd go, that's quite a good little ninja mm. film. You do have to suffer through about, ooh, it's about 82 minutes long, so another 45 minutes of Taiwanese melodrama, which is utterly, utterly hilarious, hilariously overwrought. I mean, literally, it's one of these ones that ends with a character running through the rain screaming, Ma, don't die! Ma, don't die! He gets there, she dies. And then we cut back to a ninja fight. <laughs> <laughs> and the ninja fight is like, Wow, oh, we must fight now. And the, they basically get their, the head ninja, after he dies, does, as I say, comes back. And in flashback, recites all the ninja commandments. And I was going to write them down, but there's just too many. But it was, it was surprisingly entertaining in an entertaining way, not just in an ironic "God, this is a load of shit" movie. Brilliant. And actually, to show the dedication that uh, that Skeets has to the ninja art form, he was very poorly dubbed the yeah. whole time. <laughs> I never, my, my mouth never, never, <laughs> no, 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 never. Yeah. <laughs> I had dental surgery earlier today. I'm probably still tripping. <laughs> this is a great time to record a podcast. All right. <laughs> Um, uh, but well, and they're saying well do they still have more movies to talk about one final movie and then we'll talk about the movies that we're actually intending to be talking about um, Bema Film uh, I watched a film on Bema Film Monday night uh, and it is called Martha A Picture Story it played oh, at the um, film this. festival uh, 2019 and I it was a f- documentary about a photographer I'm like eh there's other stuff to see. And it probably would have um, slid off my ra- radar forever. However, uh, there is a label called Utopia that uh, is a Blu-ray label that is uh, affiliated with Vinegar Syndrome. Their first release was a little film called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, oh. um, which we have spoken about previously in emphatically uh, positive terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, they only have four or five films. Um, their second one's a sci-fi called Minor Pres- Premise, which I haven't seen. And then I... Th- think their third or fourth release was Martha a picture story and I'm like well if those people like that film I'm not necessarily going to spend money to buy the blu-ray yet but it's on Bema film so uh, I watched and it was terrific it's a documentary about Martha Cooper who is a 75 year old woman who was on the forefront of photographing graffiti uh, back in the late 70s when that whole scene was starting out and um her and another photographer combined to make a book that documented like the bombed out trains of new york and stuff like that that wound up going around the world and inspiring a whole generation of basically inspired people all around the world to take up tagging and graph art and all those kinds of things and so the film actually starts in brazil i think with these two taggers there who are showing off their work and then showing the book that you know got to them and um and it's just um and then it cuts to martha present day uh in berlin with a tagging crew um as they go into a subway station and do some crazy ass tagging adventures um and so um but her um aesthetic sweep is a lot more than that and the film, you know, she's got quite a complicated story with lots of bits to it, um, because, you know, after about eight or nine years, the MTA in New York was like, OK, any trains that are bombed out immediately go out of circulation till they're clean. So nobody gets the joy of seeing them. And that killed 
that in New York forever, and she went on to do other things anyway. Um, so that's kind of the hook into it, but the actual um, meat of it is just that Martha Cooper is a really fun person to hang out with. There's probably more laughter per minute than almost any other doc I've seen about a photographer. You know, you get a lot of these people who are quite tortured souls, and um, she is she's not one of them. She just keeps going, and um, the there's lots of candid conversations, lots of conversations with coworkers and relatives, and hanging out, and then and and yet at the same time, it touches on a lot of cool, interesting issues about what it means to be diminished because of your gender or your age, what it means to be diminished because of the relative status of what you do in the art world, what, um, you know, all the you know, gentrification, all these sorts of things. But it, it cleverly never really hits any of them too hard. They're kind of there for you if you want to dwell on them. And if not, it just moves on. It's maybe five minutes too long at 82 minutes, but I still, I, yeah, I thought it was a really great, surprisingly watchable um, interesting one that I'm really glad I caught up with and didn't let wow. slide through the uh, cracks. Right. There's an, I know there's another documentary coming out about a photographer, which I think is a French one, where she's... I saw a trailer for it just recently, and I cannot remember the name of it, where she's, in her, I think, in her 80s as well, and she's going on a, a basically a, a trip with a young French artist. I think it's French, but um, I spotted it on YouTube recently, and it looked quite fascinating. Just like, looked like a nice little... Are you not talking about Faces Places? By that's what Faces I was places. thinking. Yes, so sorry. so that's, that's yes. Agnes Varda, who's passed Agnes away. Varda. There we go. But, yeah, yes. Faces Places is incredible. You should definitely, definitely see it. Yes, there yeah, we go. Uh, and JR is the young artist. That played um, a few years prior oh, to so the festival. Oh, so yeah, um, yeah, that myself. might be out there. I mean, I have the Varda... Um, complete uh, box as well. So. Skite. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure. Says the guy I'm who owns sure the Bergman box. Oh, yeah. And the Godzilla box. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and and the Zatoichi box. Well I, well, I haven't been skiting about it. That's the difference. No, I'm no, no. Meanwhile, they're over at my place and our uh, microphone is resting on its usual Charles Bronson box, which is on top of the Jackie Chan's film box. So um. <laughs> I'd intended to mention Mr. Majestic, which I actually borrowed from that box, only because that you gives you the chance to call him a melon farmer on ironically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's such an odd film. It's not, it, I didn't I didn't care enough about it to really want to talk yeah, about it much. No, it's it's, mm. it's it's a it's a middle of the road canon one and it it's it feels seriously out of character for Bronson. But, yeah. Know, to, Bronson as a as a melon farmer in the eighties, it's just yeah. <laughs> it's also Richard Fleischer is I've been watching quite a few of his films and he, you know and I've talked about them prior a narrow margin and soylent green and um, Boston Strangler, and one of the things I really noticed is his um, fluency with blocking in interior spaces, and so much of that film takes place outdoors, and it just I don't know if that's why he seems a bit at sea, or if he was just phoning it in on that one, or what the deal I, was. I think some of those canon ones were, I mean, I, I literally bought that box set the entire five movie box set for the mechanic and right. Tender Midnight's in there, which is just Oh, weird. Oh, it's good. good. Yeah, yeah, isn't it? Andrew Stevens is a crazy psychotic yeah, killer. It's, 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 it's an odd. It's an odd one. It's it so, is. Yeah. yeah, it's a good one though. Like, yeah. It's a good kind of odd. Now I know you've just just done a film. However, I'd love to hear what you thought of On Dangerous Ground because. Oh, okay. I, I loved it. That's I, what I um, wanted to hear. <laughs> I. It's an odd film because. Uh, it starts in Ida Lupino is top build and Robert Ryan is second. Mm. And then she doesn't appear for 45 minutes while you think it's this thing about Robert Ryan's grizzled cop 
um, involved with tracking down who actually killed this other cop, and you think that's going to be the shape of the film, mm-hmm. and that all turns out to be just kind of noise about the fact that Robert Ryan is dead inside, having been destroyed by his job, and his boss thinks he needs a break, and the cat is in the chemist warehouse bag. I brought the microphone. <laughs> so should we let the cat out of the bag? If you, oh, if you hear yeah. odd rustling, yes, yeah. my cat has decided that that is the best place um, to sleep tonight. So, <laughs> But um, it, it's a film that constantly, and I don't want to talk about it too much more than mm. that, um, because who who Ido Lupino winds up playing and the nature of how that relationship unfolds is so surprising. Mm-hmm. But it just consistently undercuts your expectations and doubles down into the emotional stakes at all time. And for a film that I was kind of felt like it might be a bit one note near the start Mm -hmm. goes some really absolutely unexpectedly touching places. I feel it's a film that I feel very warm towards, I think is it's a, and yeah. And and I look forward to watching it again at some point. My comment on letterbox, because I didn't feel like writing anything proper about it. And it's not exactly a film that people haven't talked about before Mm -hmm. was that it makes other films look like they only use 10% of their hearts. (laughs) (laughs) Boom. (laughs) Nice. And with that, I think it's time to move on to, um, Three movies that we liked less than any of the movies we've been talking about. <laughs> oh wow, we're laying the cards on the table right off the bat. But we'll see. We'll see. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll be surprised by one of your passionate love of the Enforcer, or the Enforcer, and possibly the Enforcer. So let's start in the 1950s with uh, screen icon Humphrey Bogart. Oh, and what was the title again of this? The title of this one, I think it was <laughs> for those who the, can't the, keep up. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll just re- I said I wasn't going to say it again, but I will. Three films in consecutive odd number decades that star a screen icon as a law enforcement official, all of which are named the Enforcer. So I'd like to start with the Enforcer. This film, um, what date is this? 1951, one? I believe. I, I, uh, yeah, I, I've got This all is your it. job. You had, a, <laughs> you had one job. <laughs> Introduce the Enforcer. Yeah. yeah, watch 28 different movies, talk about those, and then what was the other one? Oh, that's right. I've got a whole bunch of printouts here, and not one of them mentions the date this film was 1951. Made. That's my one bit of geekhood, is I can normally remember the release dates of movies, even if I can't remember who the fuck was in them. Excellent. <laughs> This film is called The Enforcer from 1951. It stars Humphrey Bogart, so that's our, our major screen icon of this one. It also has, and I have to say, a, a, a part I really enjoyed was Zero Mostel mm. as, as Big Babe Lazic. Uh, this film is um, based on real life, though not much of it may seem like it is. Um, We've got the story of um, Humphrey Bogart. He's the district attorney. They've got one very scared individual who um, is trying to escape. Uh, the night before he's scheduled to testify in that's a uh, right. trial against a uh, Thank you. mob hitman. Mm. Uh, trying to um, escape and um, plummets to his death. Or was he pushed? It's basically the birth of Murder, Inc. The director was a Breton, I cannot pronounce it, but Breton Ye Windust, an accomplished Broadway director. He fell seriously ill during the beginning of the shooting. So Raoul Walsh was brought in to finish the film. And he did. So he basically did the whole movie, but refused to take the credit, calling it Windust's work. 
as it was his big break and he didn't want to take right. it away oh, from him. that's kind of him. Which is a kind of an awesome thing. Although largely fictional, the film is based on the real-life investigation into a group of hired killers dubbed by the press, I've already given this one away, as Murder, Inc. Film was released under that title in the United Kingdom. It was during this investigation and the Cafalva hearings, possibly how it's pronounced, that terms like contract, a deal to commit murder, and hit, the actual killing itself, first came into public knowledge. And now, I mean, that in itself, and the gangsters use such codes in case of eavesdroppers or phone tappings. Yes, and now that's common speak. Well, this this kind of gets back to my Anderson tapes thing. Is that like we got forty five minutes into the movie and they figured out what a contract and a hit meant, and that was pretty much all that had happened. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I I found that quite interesting. I found because I, you know, I assumed in my brain that those sort of terms were around, you know, back in the you know the Scarface days back in the thirties. But of course, it's nineteen fifties and. They literally had to say have a few lines. Well, it was made in nineteen fifty one, but when did the when did the um, murder ink actually happen? It's a good question. Because I I had assumed it was set much further in the past than it was filmed. Although it, I mean, it felt contemporary. The film itself, murder ink. Yeah, they're active twenty nine to forty one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, so, so that, it's at least a decade in the past, if not more. And yeah. One thing about this film that we haven't mentioned yet is that um, flashback is king in this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Flashback. flashback is everything in this movie. The narrative it has several flashbacks of the encompassing. They're nested, aren't they? Very much. The encompassing flashback of D.A. Ferguson reviewing the case against Rico as various characters recount their involvement to Ferguson. Now, the. There are flashbacks within flashbacks within flashbacks. It is a a Russian doll yeah. um, of flashbacks. Yeah, any time a character says, oh, well, what actually happened was, you go, <laughs> and we're back into another flashback, even though we're, you know, 80% of the film is in a flashback. Right. Which sounds way more interesting than, like, or confusing <laughs> than, like, it, it just kind of... Is yeah. a feature, not it actually. Uh, yeah. It actually it works. Distract, it doesn't. It doesn't it's yeah, not I, confusing. I, I, I actually, I'm, I'm going to put it on the table right off the bat. I actually quite enjoyed this film. Yeah, but and I did enjoy the narrative structure of you know we are we've got to this point twenty minutes in where right let's review the case from the beginning and it's like well here's where the movie kind of starts. Yeah, and then it became a police procedural for most of it. It was you know it's the sort of thing that these days would have dunk dunk right after he said that you know let's right, right, right from the beginning bum bum and let's see we're in Law and Order nineteen fifty one. Oh, one thing here too, we um, may or may not have noticed, and I didn't until I read the uh, the, the the nugget of uh, information I've got here is uh, Bogey's sidekick swears during this film, but other dialogue is dubbed in over the top. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, Hayes Code! <laughs> <laughs> um. No, I I quite enjoyed it. It it just it. It didn't stand out too much, I think. Is it was yeah. it was fairly rote, but the uh, I thought Zero Mostel was great. I yeah. thought he really yeah. stole the and a very non usual role because he's only the comedic. Yeah, you know that that's what he was. He was a comic, but then you get he was the... just sort of the sweaty, nervous guy in this one, and he played it to the hilt. He and and quite sympathetically too. It was. Um, and his wife and child, and he was worried about dragging them into it. And it was, um, I, I was quite compa- I mean, I, I've always liked Zero Mostel, 
but I was quite compelled by his story. Yeah, I mean, I I've already tipped my cards. I did I did enjoy the pre flashback, the first twenty fifteen or twenty minutes. I'm like, oh, this seems we're just sort of tipped into it. Everything's going. Mm-hmm. This is quite exciting, and then it's kind of like, oh, this is all just set up for a thing to watch us very slowly get to something that we as a contemporary audience know. And I guess the um, there was just something about Bogart's character that felt very non-present. Like, you know, there's no, there's literally nothing other than the procedure to his character. We don't know if he's married. We don't no. know if he has, what his home life is like. We don't know anything. It is doggedly procedural and he's just kind of in default bogey mode. Yeah, like, well, there's, definitely. You know, yeah, there's, there's no other nuance to his character that depth. gives any kind of characterization other than it's Humphrey Bogart being a DA. Mm. And about the only, like, I mean, it's, it's fascinating that he tries to use the guilt-tripping technique on his, yeah. <laughs> his, his nemesis that's behind <laughs> bars in order to get him to confess. And all that does is, is set up the, um, the, the peril for uh, somebody at the end because mm. he's done that. Um, Worth mentioning Everett Sloan as the, uh, the kingpin, the, the main yeah. villain of the piece. Uh, you may re- remember him from Lady of Shanghai. Mm. It's look. It's and, not. It's not a terrible movie, yeah. but you put it next to something like On Dangerous Ground, which is of similar vintage. Mm. That just electric. Um, you know, the Enforcer is the kind of movie that I think people have in their heads that are, that they're going to be watching when they watch like a fifties black and white movie. That's kind of. Oh, but, yes. but the big thing I think. I mean, I'm a Humphrey Bogart nerd. I mean, for all my right. ninja movies that I talk about. There is not Ninja posters hanging up around my computer. It's Casablanca and it's Bogart yep. yeah. in about three different places. So I will watch anything that he does. And even I'll admit, he has been in some of the best movies of all time. Yeah. But at the same time, he was a studio player in a studio system. So you didn't choose. He didn't go out and go, okay, I've done Casablanca, mm-hmm. now I'm doing this. They handed him the script and said, this is your next role. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. you look in 1951, he did three movies in 1951. The Enforcer, Sirocco, and the African Queen. Right. And the gulf between the African Queen oh, yeah, yeah. and the Enforcer. Oh, the Enforcer is, to me, it's, it's, I enjoyed it for what it was, a kind of a, a middle-of-the-road like police procedural. Yeah. It's yeah. there to, you know, you go and see the latest Bogart movie, they're not all going to be winners because of the studio system. And then eight months later, out comes the African Queen. Yeah. And you've got top tier Bogart. You're asking me about Black Widow while we had the mic off briefly? Yep. It's the Enforcer. Right. In terms of that, it's a studio programmer. Yep. It yep. does, it checks the boxes. Um, you know, it just... Yeah. Um, it's, it does what it says. It's a Bogart movie. Bogart's going to be there. He's going to be the, the tough, good guy. Yeah. Yeah, and you know there's going to be the bad guys around him, and it's it's, and, it's that whole Barton yeah. Fink. What do you need a roadmap kind of uh, <laughs> approach to filmmaking? But um, I was yeah. looking through his, his IMDb list for movies that of his that I haven't seen, and he plays uh, apparently a test pilot a couple of years later, and everything every review says the worst Bogart casting of his career because he's the most unconvincing test pilot because he basically mm. plays a test pilot the same way he plays Sam Spade. Absolutely. Right. Because he was both. That's what he, he had. He was the character, character actor. Which is in, crazy, yeah, though, because actually character. his character in um, Only Angels Have Wings, you know, is just... 
a pilot who's yeah brilliant but you know i guess it's just but, something but sometimes about, you get a script i guess as, yeah. in, in those days you looked at it and you just kind of went well who, who was it that said i played the same damn role for for 20 years i just they gave me a different uh, different title and a different dame <laughs> i forget who it was it wasn't bogart but it was it was one of the the, the leading but it men. might as well have been it might as well have been yeah. they but just, i've, they I've just always enjoyed the, the bogart films where he's just a little bit steps outside like uh, we three is it we're no angels or we three angels the uh, uh, which is Peter Houston of and i haven't seen it basil rathbone and it's uh, they're um, they're three vagabond types who um, okay. um, and actually um, they're convicts on the run, but um, they um, get taken in by this family or just start looking after this family. And there's a uh, evil Basil Rathbone and um, <laughs> evil Basil Rathbone, really. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a lovely little Christmas film with um, some nice dark comedy to it it's uh, and yeah it's uh, i find that he just uh, really comes alive in those slightly off kilter type roles look i mean casablanca the maltese falcon the yes. big sleep only angels have oh, wings yeah. it, you know there's there's no questioning yeah. African that top queen. tier if, if you ask me to name my top 10 films the big sleep is in there and probably from uh, one it's an amazing movie mm. and two more personal movies it was one of our actual date movies that Oh. You know, but when we were first going out, my wife and I, we we went and saw The Big Sleep for its fiftieth uh, anniversary, and then for was I that think, before or after Story of Ricky? Uh, after the Story of Ricky, so right. I had to do a makeup film. But um, and then <laughs> I think it was that Christmas or my birthday that came up next, and I woke up to discover two huge framed pictures, one a Bogart and one that was the actual fiftieth anniversary poster because Dawn went back to the theatre and persuaded them to give it to her oh, and wow. had it framed for me. And I still have that. Unfortunately, there is no room in my house to put it up, but it's that still here brilliant. and it will be yeah, at some stage. I will have it up in my room. I'll take down everything else I can and put it back up. No, I didn't get a poster of the story of Ricky from her. Oh, uh, no, apparently not. She seems, she did ask me to actually say we need to, she said we need to see that film again. So, um, oh, okay. obviously, there's some I've got memories. I've the DVD there. if you want to. Oh, no, he was I've given the DVD. I've got it on uh, DVD and oh, okay. I was going to play it and discover everyone had just seen it. So, right. we're going to use that as a date flick yeah. sometime after yeah. the boy goes to bed. No, I, I have a whole heap of notes on Bogart, but I think you might know who he is. So, <laughs> <laughs> unless you're let's just say you're fuck it and move on yeah if you, if you don't know who Humphrey Bogart is uh, start off with a big sleep Casablanca and then just continue in a round of water from yeah there. <laughs> um well, I, I spent plenty of time doing my Clint Eastwood notes, so I'm going to do them anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, we're moving on to 1976 to a film that Clint Eastwood was in called... Um, uh, oh, Mag- uh, 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 Enforcer. Good on you. <laughs> but, um... Uh, yeah, I, d- I dug into Clint because I actually don't didn't know a huge amount. All right, there was uh, I mean obviously everybody knows who he is, and I've seen a good couple dozen movies probably along the way, but there's a lot that I haven't, and um, I didn't really even know how he came to fame. So I dug in. I found lots of interesting stuff. Excellent. Well, I, I'm looking uh, forward uh, but, to saying, "Ooh, I haven't heard that." <laughs> yeah, or maybe you have. Um, born May 31st, 1930th in San Francisco, named, nicknamed Samson by the nurses because he weighed 11 pounds, 6 ounces at birth. Ooh, I haven't heard that before. <laughs> you do that all the time, I'll kill you. <laughs> so, of course, screen star, director, I musician, composer, <laughs> former mayor of California's uh, town Carmel, advocate of transcendental meditation, golfer, pilot, 
honored with France's Legion of Honor Medal and Japan's Order of the Rising Sun Medal. Father of at least eight children to several mothers. He refuses to acknowledge the exact number. Um, the relationships with those mothers are overlapping and so complicated that the personal life of Clint Eastwood is its own Wikipedia article. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, we could talk about his not very successful high school career, but basically we could, he started acting in 1954 with a minor role in Revenge of the Creature, which is the mm-hmm. Black Lagoon sequel. Um, but his breakthrough was on Rawhide in 1958, where he played Rowdy Yates for 217 episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, in fact, where he initially tried to start his directing career, um, but they no, was never able to persuade him to let him direct an episode of Rawhide. Um, so, of course, he had a six-year break from the silver screen, uh, and when the last film role he did before he left, did Rawhide, he was third billed in Amazon, uh, sorry, Ambush at Cimarron Pass, which is self-described by Clint Eastwood as the lousiest Western ever made. Um, <laughs> he'd built enough cred that when he returned, he, um, promptly did three films for Sergio Leone as the man with no name, um, which I think everybody probably knows what those are, but just in case, A Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more, and The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Did he do that Italian comedy film, that, that sort of, was it The the Witches, or the, the uh, that sort of Ooh. pastiche thing? We showed it here. Oh, I don't know when that was. I think that might have been right after those oh, yeah. three, oh, I think. I don't it was think... quite surprising to see him turn up in that. Yeah, I don't think he, because it, it wouldn't, he didn't, I don't think he did any acting outside of the States before Rawhide, um, because Rawhide's what would have made him an international celebrity. Mm-hmm. Um but it, obviously that was a huge splash for him, and you could micro-chart his career, but I want to focus on 1971. Uh, the age of 41, uh, his career changes forever in two ways. Um, first of all, it's his first film as a director, play Misty for me, um, and that's now led to a legendary 50-year career, um, and his 39th uh, film credited as director, Cry Macho, comes out later this year. I say that because apparently uh, Tightrope, he ghost-directed, even though um, his name's not on the uh-huh. credits. Um, it also, 1971 was also the year we, he made his screen um, debut as Dirty Harry Callahan and Dirty Harry, directed by Don Siegel, um, a film that, uh, weirdly enough, both John Milius and Terrence Malick wrote drafts of, who were two uh, people I never think of in the same paragraph. Um, yeah, which, of course, then... That film saw four sequels, the second which is uh, our topic for today, The Enforcer. Uh, The script of The Enforcer was a combination of two efforts. So there were two young San Francisco film students, Gail Morgan Hickman and S.W. Schur, who decided that they would make it big by writing a Dirty Harry script, unauthorized, and uh, wrote something involving a militant group kidnapping and ransoming the mayor of San Francisco. And they went ahead and submitted this. And meanwhile, Warner Brothers had already hired industry veteran Sterling Siliphant, who came up with pairing Callahan with an Asian-American woman partner. Eastwood liked the woman partner idea, but didn't think that Siliphant's film lacked action, and suggested to Siliphant that he combine it with the script that these two film students wrote. And that led to The Enforcer. So after the first film directed by... um, Don Siegel, the second film, was directed by Ted Post, and he and Clint Eastwood did not get along at all on Magnum Force, which I still haven't seen. Um, So Eastwood was going to direct The Enforcer, but um, because he wound up replacing Philip Kaufman on The Outlaw Josie Wales, Uh and then had to see that into Post, he didn't have time to prep The Enforcer. 
Um, but he'd been working with James Fargo as, as an assistant director for a long time, and so gave, gave him the chance to step up. In practice, Eastwood did a fair bit of directing, I think, on The Enforcer as well. Um, there's a lot of substitutions as well. Lalo Schifrin, of course, wrote the original themes for the films, and uh, James Fielding stepped in the composer's seat. Uh, Harry Gardino and John Mitchum did return from previous films, uh, but of course there's a lot of new additions. The most um, blatant one, or striking one, is Tyne Daly, who is then mostly known as a day player in TV shows, and had a few, only a few film roles to her name, so it was a really big breakout from her. And um, Bradford Dolman, whose name I've always approved of, led mm-hmm. the uh, new cast. <laughs> Uh, the Enforcer was very profitable, uh, as Dirty Harry films tended to be. Uh, it garnered very mixed reviews. Um, I, I'll quote Ebert and Siskel in turn here. Um, Ebert was positive and called it the best of the Dirty Harry movies at striking a balance between the action and the humor. Sometimes in the previous films we felt uneasy laughing in between the bloodshed, but this time the movie's more thoughtfully constructed and paced. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune gave the film two stars and wrote that the major disappointment in The Enforcer is its disjointed script with its relative absence of thrills. Another criticism he had was that Harry's opponents were now cartoon idiots in contrast with the memorable Scorpio from the first Dirty Harry film. This is the paragraph I copied and pasted from Wikipedia, by the way. I did research some of this in more detail. (laughs) Um, Arthur D. Murphy of Variety indicated that the Dirty Harry format seems to be falling apart at the seams, concluding the next project from this particular mold had better shape up or give up. Eastwood's later years would see his fame propel him into politics, initially becoming the mayor of Carmel, where his accomplishments include making it legal to eat ice cream on city streets. (laughs) <laughs> After serving for two years, he declined a second term, but continued various engagement with politics, including yelling at a chair on stage in the Republican National Convention in 2012. <laughs> but those who wish to remember him for his achievements, however, can consider him simply one of the most successful actor-directors of all time, with few having been as successful in both parts of the hyphenate role. So, the question is, are you with Team Cisco or Team Ebert on The Enforcer? Siskel was the con, Ebert was the pro. I'm somewhere in the middle, but leaning towards, I liked it, but I've got reservations. It's When it comes to sequels of the Dirty Harrys, um, Magnum Force all the way. Right. Mm-hmm. Because Magnum Force is, for me, no matter what happened behind the scenes there, what's on screen is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And when you said about cartoon idiots, exactly what I had in my very few notes I wrote about it, is that they took, especially one of the characters who is, he's basically playing... Scorpio turned up to 14 and that's um, the Veron Bookwater's Bobby Maxwell mm. who we first see basically murdering someone and shooting someone but he spends the yes. entire time mugging right. to the camera mm. and he even looks kind of like Scorpio as if it feels <laughs> like they were already retreading themselves there it's it's Tyne Daly's movie it's yeah. nobody else's Absolutely. movie but Tyne Daly's Clint Eastwood fades into the background on his own film and he's a few too many puns a few too many you know he's 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 got the world weariness of the classic Dirty Harry one, but it just kind seems of a, a bit more character. comical, a bit more yeah, bit bigger than it it needs to be. The yeah. sexism sexism reminds me of some of those James Bond movies in the later <laughs> yeah. Roger Moore era, where it was becoming like really just like, ah, oh, really? Are we still doing this? Oh, when Eklund's ass was the villain of the, <laughs> yeah. Of the piece. yeah, and, and it's just, yeah. just the whole yeah, and just that whole. I mean that we talk about things that have dated, and just mm. the level that he gives to saying, 
a woman cop, you know? <laughs> like, it's the craziest thing he's ever heard of. And I guess it's one of those things where you write the thing going, okay, he's got to be so down. No, we can't have a woman cop. Woman got no place. So that by the end of the film, he can have softened a little bit and had a, a character act. But it's and more yet, like a bump in the road. There is never... It's... Um, let's spoil. Oh, why don't we? It's, uh, <laughs> Tyne Daly doesn't make it to the end credits. I mean, Dirty Harry's partner's very rarely made it halfway through the film. That's like true, the but, the, but, but Magnum Force does. Magnum Force does is one of the few. But the um, but there is never another woman cop that I can think of in any of the um, no, any of the films. So it doesn't. He's like, I won't make that mistake again. <laughs> and that's what it kind of feels like, because because she doesn't make it, it does feel like, well, that yeah, was a stupid was idea, a and especially the way they yeah. portray the um, Bradford Dillman. And the mayor. Oh, ouch! Yeah, it's um, personnel. The, that's for assholes. Because <laughs> they're well, they are trying, they're championing the idea of having a woman cop, but the movie does not champion these characters. No. Championing. This I really idea. struggled to work out if it was parody or incoherent or red meat. Mm. Like you know, it was just so. It kind of feels that that's where having two different scripts combined into one. Yeah. you've got a little bit of that. It doesn't quite flow like it would if one person was writing it top Apparently, top. Daly rewrote one of the scenes, which I think is the one of them out that she said it was outside the Coit Tower, and I think it's yep. that they, one where they're talking uh, after. Uh, yeah, and and that they previously shot it and it wasn't working, and she's like, I'm going to do a rewrite on this. And, and that's actually quite a good scene. Yeah. But yeah, I, they probably should have given her the rest of the script while they were at it. <laughs> my only um, trouble with that one is I, I Google mapped that afterwards because they left uh, Chicago oh, City gosh, Hall. there's no they way. They walked to Coit Tower. Then they went and walked and had a, a an apple juice down around, I think it's Fisherman's Wharf, but it looks even further around. And I've never right. been to San Francisco, but... He got so pissed off at the mayor, he walked five and a half miles to get there. <laughs> Holy shit, don't get him angry because you're going to be falling all over town. He might have had a streetcar ride in the middle of that. You never yeah, know. Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it, the, the script itself also for me is like the first day of their partnership lasts for a week because there's oh yeah there's the, a lot the, the the first time they go out and it like makes three. training day look like compact <laughs> yeah they start off they have one action scene they go and they talk here they go see the mayor there's something God, and they don't harry can't go, he, it, harry callahan can't go and have um just drive by a cafe without driving no, without in the window no. <laughs> without a crime hat no Dawn did say that he was a crime magnet she yeah. was, when she was watching it with me he's she like said, Hercule it's just like, or, yeah, every time he walks outside there's a Fletcher. crime happen yeah. it's like, this is what happens with Dirty Harry he goes to get in the mail and he has to shoot three guys <laughs> <laughs> and the, the amount of paperwork he must have to get through <laughs> he probably shoots the paperwork you give us a realistic Dirty Harry movie that lasts 13 hours of... that, that's that's um, Edgar Wright's famous quote about hot Fuzz is he interviewed a bunch of cops and they always complain that they um, um, police movies got the paperwork wrong, which is why there's so many <laughs> the, the people working on the the of yeah. doing paperwork. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did. I did actually. I I was optimistic in the first scene, even though there was a bit of overacting, but it had that kind of Zodiac meets Candy Snatchers kind of vibe, and I thought there might be something that was kind of, you know, gets into that sort of dark underbelly of California mm. at that time and really just lives with the discomfort because um, it's one of the things that comes out in the Martha documentary actually as well, just in the 70s how really fucking uncomfortable everything really was 
with a level of urban blight with, you know, groups blowing up buildings. Mm-hmm. Like, there was a level of ambient danger and fear that we can't... Well, I don't know. I mean, COVID's different. But, like, you know, it is really actually much greater than an, anything that's really being experienced today in the Western world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and And there's a moment where you get... Uh, mostly by rubbing off the vibes of other movies, to be fair, but the sense that that might be what this is. And then, you know, within three minutes, he's driving his car, car through the window of a liquor store. And it's <laughs> like, no. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just want to do that. But, I mean, they're definitely, when I read up on some of the scripting, they, they did, for instance, the, the cartoonish bad guys were based on the Simonies Liberation Army, yeah. which was a, a real thing at the time. They were and one the people of the that kidnapped Patty, Patty Hearst. Hearst. And yeah. the, mm. Mickey, the character in this one, was literally, they wrote her as the Patty Hearst of the group. Yeah. So, you know, mm. living in those times when, as you say, when, when the 70s, when everything was in that, that nihilistic phase that kind of what's the what's the fucking point don't believe in the government you know but in yeah. this case they didn't actually believe in anything they were just after violence just and after, money yeah exactly made yeah. it look like that so you know gave a little twist on it as i i would say as a if you want to be a completionist and watch all the dirty harry movies i think it's a it's a perfectly good watch mm. but you can feel the wheels starting to loosen they haven't fallen off the franchise the next one oddly enough i find Overlong, even Sudden though it's impact. shorter. Yeah, I find oh, that yes. too long, even though it's actually ten minutes shorter than Magnum Force. Well, I I did, and um, and um, for those avid listener um, who want to <laughs> listen back, I I actually did all the Dirty Harry films last year, apart from the first one. So I I had to rewatch this one. Oh. I, I thought, am I going to? And I thought it's probably best that I do. Um, and the the second and the third one were the were the better of the sequels. There's no mm, doubt. Definitely. Oh, Jesus, then they, it goes downhill from here. It oh. does. It does. Okay. And the last. The one, Deadpool is not great. I rewatched that. I think that's the one me. with the remote control car. Remote control car. I yes. didn't have a copy, and and uh, Darren got me a copy and lent it to me, and I watched it. And I went, wow! I saw this in the cinema, and I kind of remember it being, yeah, pretty good. Liam Neeson and oof. Jim Carrey. Oh, for that great! That. Wow. It's it's not great. It. <laughs> But yeah, the and sudden is it sudden impact? Sudden impact is the fourth, yeah, is fourth one. one. Yeah, so. it is just has this sort of over the top kind of feel. It's not. I don't think I've actually rewatched. It. I bought the box set, and I don't think I've rewatched. Yeah, it. I, I got I a remember DVD not, box that had like the four mm. discs for like nine ninety nine or something crazy, and yeah. I'd only watched Dirty Harry up to this point. As I remember as, being whelmed by <laughs> just <laughs> whelmed. As an aside, there's an extra on the Enforcer DVD and presumably the Blu-ray as well, which is really good. It's called The Business End, and it's a 30-ish minute doc about violence in movies and does it have oh. an effect. And it is surprisingly nuanced and interesting. I mean, they, uh, some of the names on it, Shane Black, David Ayer, Joe Carnahan, Michael Madsen, John Kelly, who is the president of uh, Sony, I think. Mm-hmm. Peter Hyams. Hal Holbrook, who is really anti-violence. Charlton Heston. He's not on there. <laughs> um, but um, John Milius, who, um, oh, wow. you know, um, is, is, says, oh, you know exactly what? Exactly anti-violence. He, he actually tears, apart, tears the Wachowskis a new asshole. He's, he's like, oh, they're like these anti-gun people, but they're like, oh, we'll put lots of guns in the movie and that will be a catharsis for people and they won't need to. It's like, that's bullshit. Violence doesn't relax people. Uh, and um, <laughs> The purge lied to me. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and, and then also a couple authors as well. And so, and, and, and it's a really intriguing... Um, and, and to be honest, like you can tell... Uh, the one thing that all the films that they 
show excerpts from have in common is they're all Warner Brothers films. And so at a certain mm-hmm. level, it's an extra designed to shift Warner Brothers units. But given the scope of that mission and given um, what that could have been, I felt, and given that it's basically just a Talking Heads and Clips documentary, I, I found it really nuanced. And it was interesting for somebody like Joe Carnahan who has made his share of very violent movies. He's like, look, I, I, you know, I've, I've made violent movies, but I don't think there, you know, things that really show, show suffering. I don't think that's appropriate. And I Mm. can't get behind that. I can't support that. But I also know that if you got that filmmaker here, they could make as eloquent an argument for that as I'm making for the violence in my movies, which other people think is reprehensible, you know? Mm. Um, so it was, um, yeah, I probably got more out of that than the, in, the enforcer in some yeah, ways. Yeah, but I mean, in the end of the day, there was a massive difference between, say, the violence in Deadpool and a Serbian film. Yeah. You know, and one of those has got him, uh, you know, yeah. you can... I, <laughs> I'll trust you on that because I'm yeah. not watching a Serbian Neither film. am I, no. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say Deadpool. Deadpool. You watch Deadpool. <laughs> the Deadpool. I have so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's the Deadpool and then there's, there's Deadpool, Deadpool, which yeah. also has its own violence. And then, yes. Yeah. But basically, well, well, our conclusion I think we've come to here, if you want to watch Dirty Harry, watch Dirty Harry, watch Magnum Force, Maybe watch this one if you want to complete it. Then watch Kun Kun, and then ignore the other two. Kun Kun's the Indian uh, Dirty which Harry, which I mentioned before, before yeah. and is is much better than this film because it's even though it has weird comedic bits, it's just you know it's it's a bundle of puppies and a and a hat right. insane at times and has musical numbers, which this I, one didn't. I haven't watched Magnum Force, but I think there's an argument for going straight from Dirty Harry to Zodiac. Oh, very possibly, mm. yeah. And in mention of Joe Carnahan, it's made me think that how much I'd like to rewatch Narc. The... Sarah watched that re recently and said it really held up. I really enjoyed it when I saw it. It seemed like mm. his best film. I mean, fucking Boss Level was terrible. So I don't know what he's thinking. Might be the sort of film that Hollywood at Avondale might want to put on at some point. <laughs> Just we, put in it out. Have we recently? Narc. No, 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 okay. No, I don't think so, no. Oh, okay. But just putting it out there to just, anyone just, who might be listening. Just in case. Just in case. Just in case. Well, we've done The Enforcer, and we've done The Enforcer. Should we so move what's on left? to... Um, the, what was my one again? I think it's The Enforcer. It was. Wow. The Enforcer. It's this new style of comedy that Boom. I admire from you two. Uh, That's the sound of a dead horse being... <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to 1994, Whoa. The Enforcer, uh, starring Jet Li. Uh, but... Not originally released as The Enforcer, originally released as My Father is a Hero. Not My Father the Hero, the Gerard Depardieu one, <laughs> no, <laughs> in case you're wondering. Not that. Uh, and Jet Li. So I get to talk about Jet Li. Um, I was going to do it. I tried to put oh, my hand up Australian for Australian Jet, 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 Jet Li. Li. Yeah, not Jet Li. Not Jet Li, because he's not dubbed an Australian here. Mm. He's dubbed in proper right. American. Mm. <laughs> uh, born Li, Li, uh, sorry, Lang Ji Li in uh, uh, Beijing, 1963. Youngest of four children, uh, lived in poverty, apparently, and was, didn't even go to school until he was age eight because his mother didn't want him to be embarrassed. He actually had to wear his sister's clothes because wow. they had that little money. Uh, when he did eventually go to school, he apparently was quite shy, but in Chinese schools, they have a, a summer course, where you, a summer school course, where you get assigned and you can choose to do different things over the summer. And he was taught wushu, which is the Japanese, uh, sorry, the China, Japanese of... It's getting late. The Chinese martial art, uh, and he became an incredibly good wushu practitioner. In fact, by the time he was 12, 
he was winning his first championships. And he said it was hilarious because he was 12 and the two people that were second and third were in their 20s. So he was standing on the top of the podium and they right. were still taller than him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was actually trained by Wu Bin, who uh, has uh, recognized him for his talent. Wu Bin apparently is a legend in Wushu across China. He not only recognized his talent and pushed him to learn and train six days a week, he actually thought he was so good he started financially supporting his family. He started providing food because he knew that to right. become a, a, a Wushu practitioner, you needed to have the proper diet. And his wow. mother could not afford that. So he really became almost a, a surrogate father. Um, Jet Li's father had died very, very young. Uh, he then went and performed for, of all people, Richard Nixon. On a Goodwill China, a Goodwill uh, tour from China to America, when he was, and I've seen the footage, he looks all of about 10 or 12. Oh my lord. And performed on the White House lawn for uh, (laughs) Richard Nixon, of all people, as part of the Goodwill tour. And Richard Nixon actually thought he was so good, he said he made a joking remark about, Would you like to come and be my bodyguard? And he said, No, I want to protect uh, all of the Chinese people, not just one person. So well, that's what he was reputed to have said. I don't know. That feels a little propaganda. That seems but. apocryphal. But. <laughs> but as I say, at the age of 12, he won his first all-around Wushu title. Uh, he had a five-year run where he was the top Wushu practitioner in China and then retired at the age of 18 after a knee injury. And at that same year, as most martial artists did in the 1970s, they went, you're going to be in movies. And oh, you, just to be clear, you're talking about Jet Li now and not Richard I'm Nixon. Talking, no, not Richard <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see Richard Nixon up doing the Wushu. It would amazing. Where am I, dick foo? Spiro, get over here. <laughs> so he went on to make his first movie, The Shaolin Temple. And by this stage, he was a practitioner in a number of different styles of Wushu that he was able to perform on screen. And I've just listed the fact that he's proficient in his top three, apparently, Northern Longfist style, Tumbling Fist, and Eight Trigram Palm, but he's also pretty good at Supreme Ultimate Fist, which I love that <laughs> Shape Intent Fist, Drunken Fist, Eagle Claw Fist, and Praying Mantis Fist. Plus, minor is in uh, Wushu weaponry as well, including the, the three path staff. And as anyone has ever seen a Jet Li movie knows, he got his nickname pretty much right off the bat at that first film because of the speed that he is able to do martial arts. Wow. And when I first saw Jet Li, we were watching uh, a lot of Jackie Chan movies in uh, the early days of dating with my wife-to-be. And then we found, we were starting to run out in the video stores, and then we've heard about Jet Li. And the difference between Jackie Chan's style and Jet Li's style was mind-boggling. There was times when we would have to rewind the tape and things like Once Upon a Time in China to see what actually happened because his speed on screen is God, I'd love to see that again. It's been ages. Oh, Once Upon a Time in China, there is beautiful Blu-ray out of it now. So I, I just rewatched that a few years ago and it holds up incredibly well. Uh, if we want to go into uh, the original with some of the amazing movies he did make, I'm just going to quickly jump into his... Nice and prepared. Oh, I did have it actually prepared, but unfortunately there's like four enforcers on here and I can't find the right one now. <laughs> there we go. Gently. Why so. would we choose a movie that has the same name as another movie? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait. Hopefully this is... What's this is, up with that? Yeah, this is not too confusing, everybody. But he did start off with the Shaolin Temple movies. Shaolin Temple, Kids from Shaolin, and Shaolin Temple 3 Martial Arts. Wait, the Shaolin, Shaolin Temple, like 1980. 1982. Well, oh, yeah, I've he's, seen that yeah. movie. I didn't realize he was he's in it. it. He's only okay. 18, uh, and it is quite a large ensemble cast, but apparently yeah. massive, Sweet. massive hit in China. 
also basically got people more interested in the Shaolin Temple for the first time yeah. in decades. Wow. So really pushed that up. Uh, Once Upon a Time in China was 1991, so he wasn't producing movies, you know, like some martial artists were producing six movies a year. Yeah. Especially you know, looking at you, Shaw Brothers. <laughs> but Once Upon a Time in, time in China came out. six a year, I think. His first time playing Wong Fei Hong, who was a absolute Chinese folk hero. Mm. Yeah. And uh, a little odd connection, uh, one of our um, other people involved in the film, the director Corey Yuan, played him some 25 years earlier, as, as he was an actor for a long time before he directed. Uh, then we get into the 1990s, and we've got a couple of ones. One, I want to see The Master, which looks like a, a terrific low-budget mess with some amazing martial arts. It was one of his first films actually shot in America, but with a Hong Kong crew. And apparently a wonderful-looking mess because the crew was half Chinese and half American, no one spoke each other's languages, uh-huh. and the director kept writing scenes on the day to be shot, where the <laughs> crew was basically having to work so fast that the Chinese guys simply shouted at each other in Chinese what was going on, and the American crew scrambled around trying to work out what they were supposed to be filming. <laughs> so I have to see that film. Uh, also, The Evil Cult came out in 1993, which is... I've never heard of that oh, one. It's, Evil Cult is... I th- think on i think i had seen it on netflix recently yeah, and it's, i think it is it's something. it's a mind bender of a film but we get to 1994 and this is just before he started uh, about four or five years before he made his american break with i think 1998 he made uh, uh lethal weapon 4 and along comes the enforcer and i'd love to tell you a lot about the enforcer but i looked it up on every movie site i could think of and there ain't jack shit on this movie on the internet I couldn't find a lot. And if anyone else did, please chime in now. No? Blanks, blanks around. There's not a lot. There's, it was there's... released in Hong Kong on March 2, 1995. There we go. He's got something. Um, yep. It was... Yeah, no, this is pretty much... Just this is pretty much what I got. This yeah. is, it's, there's under the Wikipedia article for My Father is a Hero. Yep. You see, there's a few things. There's a couple things, but not much. It's not... Um, yeah. It's, there's not, it's not a lot about the making story. of it. It's and directed by Corey Ewan. And Corey Ewan... Corey Ewan uh, often of his internet movie database, when I looked at it, he's only got 31 credits as a director, and the first one was co-directing Game Holy? of Death 2, which, <laughs> only 30, which for a Hong Kong director is kind of like spare time. Right. I mean, but he's got 114 credits from 1965 on as an actor. So oh, one thing to kind of, um, we talked about uh, Jet Li's uh, training, um, which is different from a lot of the other uh, Chinese martial arts people like Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung and um, yeah. Corey Yuan who studied China, at the uh, China Drama China, Academy yeah, which is opera, yeah. basically you know full time child abuse in order to make amazing martial mm-hmm. artists yeah. and that so that's where Corey Yuan came from and uh, has uh-huh. and he in fact was in Flying Guillotine too he was indeed so he, and <laughs> also when I looked through his, his resume the director of several fantastic Cynthia Rothrock films oh. so Writing Wrongs for instance he's a director of he's a director of one of her, her pretty much he, her first film Yes Ma'am did he direct the New Zealand one here uh, I don't think he did looking back but he's, he's, he's he worked with her a number of times and Writing Wrongs is a movie that the moment I saw that I immediately went I know I've seen that but I'm going to hunt it down and I'm going to watch it again because it's got perhaps one of the top fight scenes of all time Cynthia Rothrock versus wow. uh, Karen Shepard and a shopping mall which ah. is Basically, you can pull a hamstring watching the movie. It's <laughs> that frenetic. Uh, he also directed John claude Van Damme in No Retreat, No Surrender. Uh-huh. Uh, which is, 
it's a, it's an odd movie. It's mm-hmm. it's a John Claude Van Damme is is movie, but John Claude Van Damme is the bad guy, and then there's there's mm-hmm. Bruce Lee in the dreams. It's an odd duck of a movie. Have you seen the Fong Se Yuk movies that he did? I don't know. Off the top that, of my head. Yeah, so like that was like so when I was first getting into martial arts films. Uh, I, I think, saw at least the first two oh, no, Legend of Fong Se Yuk with yeah. Jet Li in them. And um, and I guess that's where he established his relationship with Jet Li. And he then did work with him on a number of yeah. occasions, yeah. So um, at least four or five times. And did he also do DOA Dead or Alive? That was uh, the, the career killer. I was getting to that. Yeah. Because after... <laughs> Thirty movies. I saw that at St. Luke's. He did. He did some the Transporter with uh, a uh, was one of his first few Statham, American yeah. films. He then did the Twins Effect two back in Hong Kong, and then in two thousand six he directed DOA Dead or Alive. And if you're not quite sure what that is, there was a video game called DOA Dead or Alive, a fighting game, Street Fighter esque, and it was known oh, for yeah. its <clears throat> jiggle physics. Yes, uh-huh. basically the the. Uh, film, uh, sorry, the film as the game makers spent an awful lot of time making sure that boobs moved properly. And yes, they did make a sequel to a fighting game called DOA Beach Volleyball because they really just slapped the old cards on the table there. Yes. <laughs> and he made a, an adaption of that, which rates a massive 4.8 on the uh, Internet Movie Database. And Who's he's, in it? This has it got a? Oh, I think it did have a name character, name uh, actor. Uh, yeah, I, I remember, but oh. there is a beach volleyball mm. scene. In yes, mm-hmm. Jamie Presley and. Yes. Uh, and a bunch of other people that probably oh Eric Roberts is in there too so of course. <laughs> yeah and Kevin Nash the professional wrestler also known as Diesel admittedly uh, I did try watching uh, Eric Roberts in a talking cat exclamation mark question mark oh. exclamation mark the other day and even with the riff tracks on I made it through twenty minutes and went oh my god wow that I have, bad, huh? I thought I'd heard Eric Roberts unmotivated and <laughs> I have never heard him literally phoning in his lines from what appears to be two tin cans on a string. Isn't you know, a talking cat? I'm a cat talking cat. Look, I'm a cat. I, I'm, I really am. I'm a cat. Shut oh. the fuck up, Eric. <laughs> Boop, done. Oh, my Lord. It's that bad. I've never seen anything like Wasn't it. Wasn't that the Kevin Spacey one? No, that was uh, Mr. Mr. Fluffy Fuzzy Pants. Pants. Mr. Fuzzy Pants. So oh, it had yes. a very different title. Um, oh, it was so, I'm so confused. <laughs> one more and we have talking cat movies oh, no. with actors with We are not careers. doing no. that. Do not send in your suggestions. Thank you very much. We have much. to stop the self-flagellation <laughs> thing. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So speaking of which, what do you think of the Enforcer? The Enforcer, <laughs> it's, it's an honor because I like Jet Li, but this well, is should a, we explain the, the story? I'll give, I can do the story before we do that because yeah. I... He already said it. My father is a hero. My father is a hero. Basically, it's, <laughs> dot, a, dot, dot. it's a it's a tricky one here. What you've got is an undercover cop, a method undercover cop. He's so undercover, his Oof. wife and child don't know he's a cop. And I'm not <laughs> sure that's the way cops work. Right. I'm really pretty sure that you don't say, well, what do you do for a living? I'm a web designer. Why do you carry a gun? I'm a really bad web designer. <laughs> uh, he has to do the whole face-off thing where he goes into prison to break out the guy who's going to get him into the mob so that he can take down the mob leader. The mob leader is the most mob leader of oh, 1994, God. most 90s yeah. guy. He wears sunglasses all the time. and um, Maybe he just likes Wong Kar Wai movies. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he does. It's actually um, Rong Yang Yu, and he is in one of my favorite movies of all time, Iron Monkey. Mm. Oh, that was the one I looked up. But here he basically, he's a suit and glasses and a scowl. And he's... Jet Li's character has to break him out of, break out 
a prison, a guy who in the English dub was called something, what's something, G, something G, easy yes, G. G-Dog. 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 And I discovered why when I looked up what the original character's name was, he was called Darky in the original <laughs> Hong Kong oh, one, which is wow. never going to fly even in 1994. So yeah. G-Dog is not much better, I've got to say. Like... If you had told me that G-Dog was an improvement on the original, <laughs> I wouldn't have believed you, but here oh, we are. Yeah. yeah, so he breaks out G-Dog and basically disappears from the movie for nearly 30 minutes because he's got a wife who's got Hollywood disease, as we termed it. We watched this one together. and Chekhov sneeze. Chekhov sneeze. Although the, the, the Wikipedia page says she has asthma. <laughs> asthma <laughs> doesn't work that way. Which often suddenly kills oh, people. It, it really suddenly does. Apparently, She's just got that generic Hollywood illness where she casts... Asthma kills. She, Jet Li says that. <laughs> she coughs twice and you know what? Well, she's not why making he smokes. it through. Yeah, he smokes a lot. <laughs> she... She's got a cough. Her son's obsessed with ants. I'm not making this movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he collects ants to make some sort of ant herbal tea, but he also makes them form Chinese lettering and then gets... No, eerily close to swastikas. Oh, and then he gets it, it was. I could, uh, I could see the old the Sieghile ants. Basically, my notes... I know I was trying to write notes, but in the middle of my notes, there is simply the words lengthy domestic interlude because for nearly 20 minutes, oh. 20 to 30 minutes, Gently disappears from his own film. And you can probably tell how annoyed that makes me because I like Jet Li being in Jet Li films. Even when he's dubbed badly it and sounds like Jet Li. Uh, it's better when he's in there kicking people in the face. And uh, My major note was there is a genre of films that are simultaneously incredibly simple but where I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I don't know how, how movies do that, but this one is like that kind of like... Sh- surely if we were watching the movie, I thought we were watching we should have gone back to that other story 15 minutes ago yeah, so we that... should have I'm, I'm, most of my notes I had simply questions myself are you too deep <laughs> undercover that your wife doesn't know you're a cop? <laughs> what, what am I this... doing with my life <laughs> what does this kid think his dad's doing let's why not... is this movie trying to out broken glass police story <laughs> let's not forget how how awesome the kid is at, <laughs> he's a good martial artist he's a martial artist he's a great little martial artist yes. it's just a pity that this movie does it showcase it at the end, but it really, it 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 it, it doesn't front load the like it, a lot of jetly movies will start off with some action at the start. There's yeah. a lot to wade through before you. This find was it. a slog. Yeah. Uh, now I will say though, the glass restaurant scene mm. is yes. fucking awesome. It's got great moments. And I would yeah. say but I was thinking enough. of films like that's <laughs> yeah. entertainment and terror in the aisles, and I'm like I'm thinking about there's there must be so many films that are kind of like the Enforcer, that are not very good. Which one? The one we've just watched, oh, right. <laughs> the, the '90s one, uh, that have one good martial arts scene in it. Um, you know, I'm not, as opposed to Bogart's one, which has four good martial arts. Oh, scenes. Yeah. it's uh, the fifth one that really kills the post-credit uh, sequence. Yeah. But I was just, I was just imagining if you went through all these like no hope, you know, late '80s, early '90s martial arts films mm. and bang together. You know, fifteen yeah. to twenty of the best scenes oh, yeah. on a Blu-ray, um, or you know, into a cinema. You know, it's like, I mean, I'd much rather watch that than the next Marvel movie. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, Surely that must have already happened. It must be some there's probably plenty of compilations there? on. There's probably compilations on YouTube at least. But oh, I'm sure there, I don't know yeah, about I'm sure an there are. Release, but, but, official, but I'm just saying to, ones, to yeah. see yeah. it like in all its restored kind of yeah. glory, because let's be honest, the world doesn't really need. A 4K restoration of the Enforcer to be screened. It doesn't, and I don't for think anybody, it's going to. But I, that scene, no. 
and the, and there's there's some great fighting in the at the, end, the end as well. The end yes. it is. It's once That's again it's, where, it's too yeah. little too late is what I wrote there because we had that great scene. It's a, a you know a, a a very nineties restaurant with glass everywhere, and they drive cars through it and they throw people through it and they they gently fights all over the restaurant. And unfortunately, it suffers for me a tiny bit from that nineteen mid nineties frenetic editing. Not as frenetic mm. as when we watched Black Mask a while ago, and that was cut into shreds, and it was like mm, having yes. a, a, a wee seizure every time it started. But there's a lot. I mean, I, I was one point I started trying to count the cuts in an action scene, and I just lost count because it was bang, 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 bang. And sometimes with a martial artist like that, you just want to pull back and let them do it. That's why Jackie Chan's yeah. ones work so well because the director, a good director, puts that camera back, maybe moves it around a bit, cuts it from time to time, but he lets you see what they did. Mm. intact it's not they throw a punch and they cut to the other side and bang the punch hits you see that punch hit and you go that would have fucking hurt (laughs) (laughs) but the the story as it as it kind of ground along there and it got to that final scene there was there was a lot of a lot of are we actually going to get the father and son martial arting together because we we got to these bullying scenes with the, the kid and he's he's turns out he's an excellent martial artist as well when those two work together at the end, yes, it's not for me not long enough. It yeah. needed more between the two of them, but, but pretty no, impressive. But stuff. Pretty impressive stuff, yeah. So it really does look like it hurts. Once again, the nineties come in there, and suddenly we got wire work. The, the scene where he picks the kid up and basically spins him around like kicking people yeah, in yeah. the face. Yes. You're kind of going, well, I'm not sure that's physically actually going to happen. But in the mid nineties, when wire work mm. was the king, that was that was. There. So they don't pull back on uh, violence towards the kid. Oh no, either. no, they yeah. beat the shit out of him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's some fucking there is intense a, stuff. A lot of slapping of small children and punch. I mean, he gets punched right in the face at one stage, isn't he? Mm. So just boom in the and face. Choked and choked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dr- head underwater. The whole thing. We had Chekhov's drowning scene at the start. Yes, it's like, let's see how long you can hold your breath. I wonder if this will come back to haunt him. <laughs> blah 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 blah. <laughs> Chekhov gets around. Oh, Chekhov. Chekhov is is, is the king. Of our movies, we can always see yeah. something coming. We've watched too many movies together, I think. <laughs> but uh, I had a, a look at um, who put this out because it came out from Dimension Films. Dimension Films, this is my favorite thing I found out about them. Um, they were the offshoot of Miramax, yeah, that was quote to put out films that were too disreputable for uh, Miramax's um, bosses, Bob and Harvey Weinstein. So, oh, was well, no, Harvey Weinstein. Uh, Harvey Weinstein. But wasn't Harvey Stream Weinstein. a Dimension film? I yeah. think it was. So well, because Bob, Bob ran Dimension, which was... The, so that was the thing, is that Bob uh, ran Bob Dimension, Dimension yeah. and right. Harvey Harvey's, ran Miramax, Miramax, and then Bob outgrossed Miramax with Scream and and so many of these other things. And Yeah, but you if, if, if you have to get a movie in, it's like, well, no, Harvey won't touch that. With a, well, no, Harvey will touch anything with a 10-foot <laughs> large ball, but he won't touch your film. Let's not go into that, <laughs> Fuck that guy, shall we? Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 an it's an unloved movie. It's there's no decent release. We ended up watching this on YouTube because we came up, you know, I came up with the idea before I discovered the film isn't on anything. I mean, I don't know what we we found three different cuts of it on YouTube, uh, and one of them had the worst audio I've ever heard. This one was slightly pixelated, but there is no slightly release. slightly pixelated. <laughs> yeah, okay, <that's laughs> slightly a lot pixelated, and in action scenes yes. when 
people move around, they pixelate more, which means that the martial arts scenes were disappointing. Absolutely. I, but I, I, I thought Pac-Man was a star. <laughs> and I looked up, it did. It was apparently scheduled twice for a Blu-ray release, and has never happened. Both pages were from different websites, and went <laughs> coming this year will be the. Actually, know, we can't be bothered. Yeah. No, it, it, one of them even uh, gave the label and then checked nothing. So it's it's just one of these ones that's dropped out of. It's it's a real in-between film. It's mm-hmm. not as his 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 classic eighties Hong Kong ones. It's not the ones that people know. Even though the the, the two thousand ones, watching the trailers look bonkers. I have never seen the one, and I watched the trailer for it recently, and I just yeah. went, "That one <laughs> is in my wheelhouse." It's I'd, Jet I'd like Li to see that as versus well, yeah. evil Jet Li while yeah. killing off other Jet Li's. They had that trailer recently <laughs> oh, at the so Hollywood. Is that yeah. is the the one? Is it yeah. the one? Oh, yeah. yeah, I've never seen that. No, I think we need to find a copy of the one and, and watch that just <laughs> as a refresher from the enforcer, because as I say. It's got some moments, but it doesn't have enough. <laughs> and sorry, Jet Li, don't kick me in the face for that. <laughs> if Jet Li's listening to this podcast, <laughs> I'll, I'll be, be surprised. <laughs> I'll be more surprised than you. <laughs> well. Much I, less if he's, if he's spent two weeks in a quarantine hotel <laughs> and then drove out to undisclosed locations. <laughs> so the, I guess he could show up for the movie marathon. You never know. Yeah, you never yeah. know. The original title, something, or the American title, Something Hero? It was or? My Father is a Hero. It was actually the uh, title, it was the direct translation from direct the, trans- from and, the and that one. actually fits more. Fits than, more, yeah, but yeah. I don't think, but obviously it got to Dimension Films and they we're not calling it that. No. So. Something I'm still not clear on, like, it's clear that Dirty Harry's the enforcer. I guess Jet Li is the enforcer, mm-hmm. but was Humphrey Bogart the enforcer? I, I oh yeah, he, he totally was. kicked I off. thought the enforcer yeah. was the guy for the mob. Who yes, was the hitman. Mob enforcer, mob enforcer. Is, is a common. Yeah, so mm. Bogart yeah. isn't the the no. enforcer. No. Yeah, but so yeah, I would say I, it would be the um, the main villain who created who started the murder inc. Yeah, uh, then again, be... Bogart could have played a gardener and still would have come across as the enforcer. To be perfectly True. honest, and that's probably more. Th- Uses the word enforcer than I ever intend to have. We would have played a drinking game, but I only bought one beer. I want to shout out to Sprig and Fern Breweries for uh, Hitchcock's Hazy. This is not a plug; they didn't send it to me. I bought it, but it's delicious. But they could. They, they could. could. So it's, Sprig and Fern, uh, if you're listening, uh, yeah, we'll have a flag in for next song. Yes, great. we're shameless. <laughs> and we but like you've, beer. If you've, if you've listened to this, you know we're shameless. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so like, subscribe, etc., and we'll see you next time. Cheers. Bye.